This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Wednesday to you. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff uh, Simpson, is it? Yeah. It's been like over a year. Yeah. Jeff Simpson and um, Terry Stevens. That's right. The gang's all here. I think as Locked little loaded. Terry would Ready like you to fun. know as little information, personal information about, about him as possible. As possible. Except today we're going to expose everything. Excuse me? Including the electrolysis. Well. You okay with that? You have to take the, the path of least <laughs> resistance, right? <laughs> we got a big show today. Uh, our first guest is, he's going to blow up media. Really? Yeah. Like, like the, what do you mean? Well, and the, I, I have... Like that? Exactly. I was waiting for the explosion. Yeah. Because we are also uh, surprised that, that news organizations aren't as partisan of the, as they've pretended to be. We are? Yeah. It's like they're, they're against Trump or they're for Trump. And our is guest it, today is going to say maybe this has been long yeah. needed. Isn't nonpartisanship just sort of a ideal more than a fact well i mean because naturally as humans you're going to have an opinion regardless of what you're doing right but i guess the point too is is nonpartisanship the ideal that we actually would want right maybe nonpartisanship is for people who can't decide which side of the fence they're on yes and Mm. nonpartisanship also may have may have maybe enabled some of our worst policies in government Mm. to go through Un, um, challenged, unchallenged, because you just report what they're saying, uh-huh. not what the okay. Oh. And you feel like everything has to be like you know. If I say a Democratic line, then I have to say a Republican line, and I'm going to say both, even though one of them actually may be a lie. How much of this goes back to the maybe the the misconception between the idea of say like a columnist versus a reporter? Maybe except I think we actually before like 1930. The the most powerful, incredible, well known reporters and columnists were biased, right? And they just stated their bias, and they didn't just carry the water, but they just made logical arguments about why their bias was accurate. And then after nineteen thirty, nineteen forty, we decided that we needed to sell more papers. So mm-hmm. to do so, bipartisanship became kind of more of the norm, because hmm. I could sell twice as many papers if I offended nobody. Right. So then our journalism, we supposedly took on this ideal of not offending anybody. And now, but we were always still biased behind the scenes. Oh, right. sure. And now you have papers across the country where it's kind of blurred a little bit. Yeah. But then you say like the New York Times who tries to put this firewall between the opinion section and then the rest of the right. newspaper. But it's still fairly and, – And they put out their – well, their editorial board will have a point of view. Yeah. And, and then, you know, so, and then they put out their – have you seen their, their new Twitter policy – for, no. uh, they told all the reporters, you know, just you, you don't need to uh, project your you, – you shouldn't give a political opinion, right? You shouldn't give out any opinions that are going to look badly upon the fact that you work at the New York Times. Because yeah. when these reporters tweet, you want to put your personal opinion out there, but people are always like, well, you work for the Times, so yeah, that's oh, their that's opinion. Right. You can't, yeah, so you, you can't, can't speak, speak for the Times. Two different ways. Yeah. Um, and, and many are even arguing, is, is the reason Trump – even president is because we supposedly played this nonpartisan role 
And now they're playing a very partisan role. So now everyone's like – it seems like all the media is against Trump. Hmm. But all the media wasn't against Trump when he was running. Right. They were very bipartisan in allowing every thought to be said, every you know statement to be made. And not even – and then even Hillary Clinton's demise may have been a fall from – what are they? Falls e- equal – False, e- false, yeah, false they, equal, equivalencies. There you I go, think this was the downfall right here. Well, it could have been. Do you prefer articles that have an opinion or do you prefer articles that are more neutral? I, I actually think – I just want the facts. But I, I, if they have an opinion, that's fine. Then I know where you're coming from. But then just give me facts. I want the data. I want as many facts as we can get. But it does seem that most people will gravitate toward articles and, and readings that you know are more in line with their belief exactly. system. No, they will. Don't you think? I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of our human nature. Yeah. But and I don't even think our bipartisan. I mean, there there's still people that are so partisan, but they're they're not telling facts. They're just spewing the line of the person they're defending. Right. So what I'd rather have is a real journalist actually investigating with real investigative processes to figure out what's going on, even if they're biased. Like Woodward, Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein. That's a great example. I mean, there's a lot of the Vietnam War may have happened or may have continued as long as it did because we had this bipartisanish approach to nobody wanting to offend the other side, so it makes everything seem equally valid, even not. though the data may not be equally valid. Mm. Hmm. It's an interesting discussion. We will be talking with a, 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 a you know, I guess a, a journalist, a journalism professor, but. And a biased one at that. Right. By the way, just like the rest of us. But he's, he had the <laughs> – Just admitting it, yeah. He had the guts to finally say maybe it's time to end this, this, this mirage that we're all so objective. Hmm. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Lots of stories happening. There was – you know, Trump was accused of not calling fallen soldiers. He called a bunch of them yesterday. Apparently, he said some insensitive things. He's denying it now. So that's a story that's out there. But he said it in front of a congresswoman. The congresswoman was in Wrong. a limousine with the widow on speakerphone, and she said – she heard the president say that the uh, – what that the the soldier kind of knew what he was getting into. Wrong. I mean, as she was sure, on the died, way to collect, he, it, he she, was getting into. She was on the way to collect his body, and that's what the president said this morning. President Trump says, "I didn't say that, and I have proof." He didn't offer the proof. Yeah, like maybe you know, drop a little sound clip in there, but maybe that's here's, too too far. Here's my You're recording wrong. of me saying it. So that's the, that's a, a story that's out there. A federal judge in Hawaii blocked the implementation of the Trump administration's third and latest iteration of its travel ban on Tuesday. The Washington Post reported the ban, which was set to take effect on Wednesday, today barred the entry of travelers from Syria, Libya, uh, Iran. Yemen, for some reason, Chad. I don't know if anyone really knows why, but Chad's involved. Uh, Somalia, North North Korea, and Venezuela. The decision from this judge in Hawaii stopped the ban temporarily, at least, though there's still travel restrictions from North Korea and Venezuela. The previous two versions of Trump's travel ban were also blocked by the courts. The second version was set to go to the Supreme Court, but when they put out the third version, the Supreme Court kind of kicked out that review of the second because, well, there's a third, so we'll move on. But now the third's been blocked, so maybe this goes to the Supreme Court. We'll see what happens. Holy cow. It's crazy. Ajit Pai, he's the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, rejected President Trump's claim that the FCC could shut down a network that broadcasts, quote-unquote, fake news. 
Under the law, the FCC does not have the authority to revoke a license from a broadcast station based on content, Pai said at the AT&T Forum Tuesday. The FCC, under my leadership, will stand for the First Amendment. Trump tweeted criticism of NBC uh, on Wednesday last week after the network reported that he had called for a tenfold increase of the nation's uh, nuclear stockpile and that Rex Tillerson called him a moron. If you remember that whole yeah. fiasco, that, mm-hmm. was, that was last week. So NBC's safe, though. Well, from the FCC, they can't yeah. take their well, license. Because that's the only way Trump could shut down the airwaves, right? I don't know. Unless there's another way. Who but knows? N- NBC is not safe from poor ratings. That's a great point. Wow. Make gun buyers wait a few days before receiving a newly purchased firearm could keep 910 people across the U.S. from being killed with a gun each year, a new study says. The research supports enacting a nationwide waiting period between buying and receiving a gun. In the states that already do this, the guns appear to be killing fewer people. This, of course, in response to the recent Las Vegas shooting. This is out of the... A team of researchers from the Harvard Business School wanted to find out whether making people wait before putting a gun in their hands put a dent in those numbers, and it did. Gun killings in states with waiting periods dropped by 17%, suicides by between 6 and 11%. Okay. Well, that's... Just a waiting period. Uh, uh, let's do it. Well, you know. Seems like a no-brainer. What like, are you going to do? Right? Make people wait before they can We have a constitutional right to get our gun as fast as humanly possible. Is, some is, it, is that right? I don't I know. know. I mean, I don't know if that was is speed. I don't think it's mentioned in there, yeah. but I think implied, uh, people maybe. feel that way, yeah, and so we'll sure. fight for it. I mean, when you need a gun, you need a gun. But they have evidence that this happens. But it's just 17 17%. But it's Harvard. They're just, you know... Researchers. Do they actually own guns? Do they know? They don't even own a gun. And finally, a cow. A cow was running loose in the streets of New York on Tuesday. News stations had helicopters getting live feeds and people tuned in to see the show, of course. The internet apparently was all all on top of this. They dubbed it the Brooklyn Cow. That was the hashtag on Twitter, Brooklyn Cow. As in, uh, man, this Brooklyn cow has made my entire day. I hope he finds Pizza Rat, and they run off together and start a folk band. That was one tweet wow, that was Wow, that put was out. a crazy tweet. Yeah, police corralled the cow on a soccer field in Prospect Park, where they were joined by a crowd of onlookers who jogged along as the cow ran from police and ran through soccer nets. Run, and cow, run. Knocked over one kid in a baby stroller. Oh, no way. Kid's okay. He had a little cut lip, but he's okay. Well, yeah. And it was, it was a baby bull. It was a male cow. So, I mean. Wow. Apparently, the cow had uh, been it was captured Brooklyn cow it was it escaped from a slaughterhouse in Sunset Park yeah apparently there's a slaughterhouse in New York <gasps> no city way so the uh, cow escaped and he's by the way running for his life running for his life uh, this is becoming a thing in New York earlier this year a cow escaped from a slaughterhouse in Queens and was put on the run for two and a half hours according to WNBC it was the third bovine to have escaped in the last year according to the station uh, this specific bull was uh, then taken to Skyline's Animal Sanctuary in New Jersey. Apparently, because he escaped, he gets to live on his life oh. and not become food. You know how they caught That's him? That's great. How? Oh, yeah. Taze it. Oh, I hate it when you see a cow taze. Now, I've heard that there's some law that says if the cow escapes, he gets his freedom. That sounds like right. a very noble law. Now, how come that's but, not true for prisoners, like right. human prisoners? Well, because they're not cows. They're not being turned into food. And <laughs> yeah, they're not going to be, yeah, processed. quartered. <laughs> but um, this might have more to do with the fact that so many people were watching. 
Oh, yeah. And the PR fallout for one cow, let's just send them on to the sanctuary. I mean, what do you of, do? Just lasso them and then walk him right back right to the back slaughterhouse? Right back to the slaughterhouse. Here you go. You lost yeah. one. Yeah. The funny thing is, is would anybody really know if they snuck him in the back door in a few days? Not no, because really. he looks like all the looks other like cows. All the other <laughs> Apparently, he's on a 30-day hold to make sure he doesn't have any diseases. Then he'll be released into the sanctuary with the 39 other cows that are apparently just living out their lives. Those that had fled before him. In New maybe, Jersey. Maybe so. he'll be deported. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he's an immigrant. Maybe some chat. No, but he's an American cow. Well, Let's he's keep... an illegal American. What, what if his parents brought him here when he was really young? <laughs> From where? Does he need a DACA? Is he like, a Syrian cow? I don't know. Could I'm be just, a Mexican there's cow? There's possibilities here. You know what? I think that they, border, all, they that, all taste the same. That border's wide open. Cows can just walk across the border. I didn't know if you knew that. No, that's why we're building a wall. In fact, keep there's, the some, there's some cattle ranches that kind of, you know. Straddle the border down there. Goodness. What a lucky cow. Yeah. He made it. He made it on TV. Yeah. He's right up there with Pizza Rat. Can't you see the rest of the cows in, like, the slaughterhouse watching the TV screens? And they're just like, run, Jimmy. (laughs) You run, you big cow. How great. What a great story. There you go. Doesn't that? We got a little sound from it, too. Yeah, it's good. Except for the little boy that had the hurt lip. It's okay, though. Oh, is it? Yeah, he took a hit, but he kept rolling. He's good. He's in a stroller. Now he'll be a vegan. That cow's going to get sued for all he's worth. Yeah. How much hurting do, that boy. How much do you think that cow is worth? Well, if you cut him up, put him on a plate, how much is that worth? <laughs> oh, gross. Uh, like 20 bucks. It's like a T-bone, right? Speaking of T-bone. I'm sorry. Gordon Hayward. Wow. Ooh. Did you see that? Yeah. See, I didn't want to see that. I didn't want to see it. No, but, I actually never saw it up close Yeah, because I did not want to see I, it. I've both seen the video, the replay, and up close because, you know, of course, there's photographers under every single basket. But so when of course everybody need... in the stadium turns their head, see, and, and the he, arena. He makes a move out by the three-point line, cuts to the basket. They toss him the ball. He jumps up to get it. I don't even know if he made the basket. But then he lands. I, I did he see... land on his own? Did he land on someone? I only saw it once. I don't want to see it again. So I don't know. He either landed on someone or he just landed wrong. Clean, oh, uh, apparently sad. a clean break of the ankle. Yeah, but like they, they said, like, where was I reading this? Uh, he Didn't broke look clean. tibia and dislocated the other one. The ankle? Tibia. Okay. So just horrible. But, like, and, but it was like 90 degree... Break. He lands in pain, spins around, and oh. you know, you, you kind of see something's weird. But you know, players are moving in between yeah. you and the camera. The reaction from his team's bench, where they yeah. all just covered their faces, well, was the all crowd. You, the crowd back there. Oh. I mean, oh, it's so bad. And you know what? It was only six minutes. Six into minutes. The season. You don't yeah. want to be sent. You don't want to be insensitive. But you know, if you've spent all that money to acquire him, oh. it's like it's okay. Oh, we it's, got six minutes of play. Out it's of a you. guaranteed contract. He's fine. He's fine. Yeah, he's fine. The Celtics <laughs> might be in trouble. But they um, – remember, he was the one that was making all the, the noise. And then the minute he kind of dropped, a bunch of other people started dropping well, after there, him. Well, there was noise around him to see where he was going to go. Yeah. What, what, was, what, what was the move was he, he was going to make? with the Jazz? He was the linchpin that started kind of free agency. J.J. Watts, who had the season-ending knee injury, was yes. it knee? Uh, he wrote him and just said, dude. Yeah. I feel for you. I wonder if it's a season-ending thing. They, uh, my wife was reading last night. He, uh, not so different. 
I was th- I was thinking Aaron Rodgers, who had a horrible. Oh yeah, He'll- Aaron Rodgers will be out to week fifteen, so we dropped him from fantasy football last night because he's. Oh, I bet your point. wife is devastated. Yeah, we had to go with somebody else. It's not good, but yeah, JJ Watt, he's a defensive lineman. Yeah, from the uh, one the of the Houston greatest Texans. Yeah, uh, he's tweeted out pictures of him sitting in bed watching football, uh-huh. and he's got his knee up, and he's just like, "Go get him, boys!" You know. But how do you of- not just turn into a big? fatty fat when you're well, sitting there you, and you can't work out you yeah. can't move your leg yeah that's got to be so hard as an athlete lots of upper body lots of upper body do? sit-ups yeah. yeah you do like the little arm pumps what's yeah. that machine called it's like the bicycle pedal the arm pump for your hands yeah get some weights just you, you, there's things you can do resistance training or just watch kelly or Ripa. just hang out and watch daytime tv he get <laughs> huge arms and then just run on his arms yeah Wow. You ever seen somebody do that? Yeah, a gymnast. Hmm. He's not a gymnast, though. No. He's like one of the leading defensive ends in the world. Notice you didn't talk about the Dodgers. Hmm. Never heard about them. Did they win? They're they, 3-0. and 3-0. They have they a could, really good they chance. They clinch then. it tonight. <laughs> tonight. They'll clinch it. They've got it. Tonight, tonight. They'll clinch the series Tonight. And they'll go to the World Series since the first time since 88. No beard day today. <laughs> it's no beard day. So today, don't have a beard. It's the beginning of November almost is what they're saying. Check. Check it off. Uh, we got a great guest coming up. We're going to be talking about the end of nonpartisan journalism. Is that a good thing? Uh, it might be. And when you, when you hear the real argument... Some of the confusion, the chaos going on may be just the simple illusion that partisan, nonpartisan journalism ever existed in the first place. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, see the world in a different light right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, the decline of nonpartisan journalism uh, have many people calling at, calling out fake news. But is it possible that nonpartisan journalism is a good thing um, and, and really has this – is it just an illusion anyway that we can be nonpartisan? Um, it's just a great discussion, and I'm excited to have our guest here with us today. Mitchell Stevens is a um, – professor of journalism at NYU and uh, is in the Carter Institute at the New York University. He's the author of A History of News, a New York Times notable book of the year. Mitchell, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. What a great, I think, uh, I don't know, just topic you've brought up because we this idea that journalists, and again, I have a journalist, I have a degree in journalism, and I learned and learned over and over. It's all about being unbiased and nonpartisan, but is that even realistic? Well, obviously, it's not perfectly realistic because we're born with our opinions, our feelings, our prejudices even, and nobody can entirely control them. I mean, it's, you know, are, are we nonpartisan about the United States? Are we nonpartisan about democracy? Are we nonpartisan about uh, the use of violence in Mm. politics? There are lots of things we have strong opinions on, and we can't get rid of all of them. Right. Uh, The question is whether we should be struggling so as hard as we long have taught people in journalism school uh, to uh, to make 
to make nonpartisanship the goal of our journalism. Is it because I, I guess our fear is that um, what that if, if we're not part if we're if we're nonpartisan then then everyone's safer. Then we make sure every idea is consumed. Versus partisanship makes it so whoever's the biggest and partisan will just push their idea. Is that what we're worried about? I think that's you know it's a really good way of summing up part of what we're worried about, which is yeah, it'll be a survival of the loudest. Uh, you know, the people that that yell their opinion the loudest, that have that whose opinion is uh, strongest, is supported by the most money, for example will be heard. But there's a second thing, too, I think, that's be, that was behind this uh, move in American journalism toward nonpartisanship in the 20th century. And, and that's just a feeling that, uh, that loud opinions at some point get stupid. <laughs> and uh, you don't just want to hear people yelling, oh, no, you didn't. You're wrong. You're, you know, you're fools. And, you know, we hear a little too much of that nowadays on cable TV, perhaps. So uh, uh, so I think these two things uh, moved us towards nonpartisanship in the in the 20th century. When did we start moving there? What was it specifically? Because I, if I recall, uh, you know, early earlier, like before 1930 or so, uh, there was a lot of partisanship and it was OK to be a partisan journal journalist. Yeah, we we call this traditional journalism, but it really was. But nonpartisanship was not the tradition in the United States. I mean, the United States was born uh, before the revolution out of uh, an extremely partisan anti-British press, much of it run by the Sons of Liberty. Hmm. Uh, The early decades of the American newspapers, they were extremely partisan. Uh, We journalism historians sometimes call that uh, the partisan press. And uh, and it began changing in the 19th century when, uh, you know, particularly towards the end of the 19th century, where journalists like Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst began assembling these uh, large mass audiences because of the steam press and the rotary press enabled them to print a lot of papers. And if you're going to have a mass audience, you don't want to alienate the Democrats or the Republicans. You kind of want to get everybody under the tent. But what really changed it, and uh, my latest book is called Voice of America, Lowell Thomas and the Invention of uh, uh, 20th Century Journalism. Uh, What really changed that, I think, was broadcasting. And Lowell Thomas, uh, who everybody in America would have known uh, 50 years ago, and nobody in America seems to know now, nobody below the age of uh, 60, uh, was the first uh, or hosted the first network radio newscast. So he he was assembling a new kind of mass audience that spread around the country. And, uh, And he didn't want to... Uh, alienate Republicans. He didn't want to alienate Democrats. Uh, so he decided he was going to play it, as he put it, right down the middle. And, you know, he gave, uh, he, he was reasonably kind to uh, President Franklin Roosevelt and reasonably cl- kind to President Herbert Hoover on the other side. And uh, it worked. He got big audiences. And I think this really moved us towards this drive for objectivity, for nonpartisanship that uh, is coming into question today. So we get we I guess it drives bigger audiences 
what's the downside? I guess less truth. Yeah, that's uh, well said. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, you, when you talk to uh, journalists who were raised in this tradition, who were brought up as uh, you know, many of us were in the 20th century and in the world that the Lowell Thomases and the Walter Cronkites uh, of the world created, uh, you, you start to think that that being even-handed is the most important thing. It's more important than, uh, you know, cutting to the heart of the matter than, uh, as you put it, than conveying the truth. You know, that journalists, as long as they've succeeded, as my man Lowell put it, in playing it down the middle, were satisfied. Hmm. And, and they shouldn't be satisfied. I think journalists have to go beyond saying, well, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, or as we sometimes put it, he said this, she said that, and my job is done. I think they have to figure out, uh, uh, they have to help us a little more and figure out whether he or she was correct. And it, it really gave a lot of power to Cronkite to, and, um, and, and Brinkley, these people that were because they were seen as almost above the fray and almost deified, like they they would bring the audience and the whole story. Except if we have to tell, you know, if we have to tell it in equal, even-handed, bipartisan way, you may not have time to tell the whole story, especially in a two-minute story. Yeah, and you know, and and as if you're always trying to balance the seesaw. As the you know the Cronkites and the Tom Brokaws of the world, following my guy Lowell Thomas, I believe, uh, like to do. Uh, you know, sometimes the seesaw is not balanced. Sometimes mm-hmm. one side is right and the yeah. other is wrong. There's a really and, big kid on the other side holding it down. That's the seesaw, <laughs> but we can't talk about it. Yeah, we can't mention it, and you know, and and. The seesaw has looked uh, particularly unbalanced uh, in the last year or two, and uh, and, I, and that's one of the reasons that I think this matter is is uh, becoming more important, and uh, and 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 people are uh, are are looking more closely at the limitations of nonpartisan journalism. Did it give us examples? Because it did. There there are examples of where it may have impacted the Vietnam War. Um, the uh, Pentagon Papers discussion. I mean, there's there's situations where uh, the the illusion of partisan nonpartisanship may have uh, hurt the country. Uh, that's certainly the case. I mean, let's go back to Senator Joseph McCarthy in the early 1950s, who was running around saying there were, you know, 14 communists in the State Department and things like that turned out to be totally made up numbers. And uh, journalists were simply reporting what he said. He was a senator. You say what a senator said. And if he was a Republican senator, so you you want to quote a Democratic senator who might have the, the nerve to stand up to him. Uh, even Stevens balanced. Everything's fine. Well, it wasn't fine because, you know, McCarthy's charges were wild and were ruining people's lives and, and, and in many cases were, uh, were not supported by facts. And uh, Edward R. Murrow, uh, another great broadcast journalist, early broadcast journalist, uh, finally took on Joseph McCarthy on uh, his CBS television program. And in a uh, in a very partisan way, he pointed out that 
uh, that his charges were not correct and mm. his charges were causing chaos. And, and I think that was an early example of the limitations of nonpartisan journalism and the importance occasionally of uh, taking of journalists, figuring out who's right and then taking the side. I guess I guess that's is that how you balance partisanship um, would be with the facts, with the real data. So it, it almost demands more skills and abilities as a journalist to be a researcher and to get the facts. Uh, one of the uh, great journalists of the 21st century, John Stewart, uh, <laughs> uh, on Comedy Central, uh, had a wonderful bit where he criticized CNN for. Uh, you know, having one person yelling on one side of an issue and balancing <laughs> that with another person yelling yeah. on the other side of the issue. And then the anchor would end by saying, we'll have to leave it right there. <laughs> and, you know, and Stuart's thing was, no, don't leave it there. No. Right. Who's saying what? Give us some facts. Give us some information. Isn't and that true? And there is true? kind of laziness to uh, nonpartisan journalism. It's interesting because as you go for the audience – uh, nonpartisan seems like the ideal, but it also then it, it becomes um, it, be, it makes a lazy media. It makes a lady, lazy press that then it's just all it opinion. Can. It's just people spewing opinion. Yeah. You know, he said this. She said that. Let's leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, instead of figuring out what was really going on. And, uh, you know, so this is important. Uh, this this the limitation of nonpartisan journalism became apparent, as you said, during the Vietnam War, where, you know, the U.S. government was not being entirely accurate about, uh, you know, for example, about the way the war was going. It was going worse. And we were hearing from uh, Lyndon Johnson's and Richard Nixon's administrations. And uh, and so simply saying what uh, the government, the U.S. government was saying was not sufficient. Uh, you had to look behind those numbers. You had to do more investigating. You had to get more facts. And, uh, you know, and I, I think we've seen this uh, with the Trump campaign and the Trump administration uh, in in the past year. It's, it actually seems like um, – and we've heard the new phrase false equivalency. It's not news, new, but I think it's new to the kind of maybe this industry. But um, the idea that – Equal time for e- for equal candidates meant candidates were equal, and it, I mean, is it possible that this nonpartisan approach actually enabled Trump's message and gave him? In fact, it wasn't even he had a, a disproportionate amount of attention and 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 service from the press, didn't he? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, first of all, because he was uh, you know such a energetic, in some ways even charismatic character because he was willing to break the rules and say things that other people weren't saying. He got uh, huge attention, disproportionate attention to his uh, early polls in the, in, the, in the Republican primaries. But he also, you know, no politicians always tell the truth. I'm not naive about right. that. But, you know, most fact-checkers reported that... Uh, you know, that candidate Trump and now President Trump uh, wanders from the truth uh, more frequently than any uh, uh, president we've seen or any major party candidate we've uh, we've seen in the presidential election. And so if you just say, you know, Trump says this and uh, Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or Hillary Clinton says this and leave it there 
in John Stewart's term, you're not doing your job as a journalist. Mm. And it was a very big moment in the history of mainstream American journalism when uh, the New York Times finally, in a headline on the front page, used the word lie, L-I-E, mm. to characterize something Trump has said because, you know, the nonpartisan journalist, the objective journalist was so reluctant to use a term like that. But that's what he was doing. And that was the truth in that case. And uh, and and I think journalists are learning they have to be, go beyond the seesaw, the false equivalents that he said, she said, to get us uh, deeper towards the truth hmm. uh, into what's really going on. And so now it seems like what we are seeing is really the shift in um, – at first it just seemed like the shift of this – of Trump creating chaos. But really what it may also be that we're seeing is the shift of major media organizations moving from the nonpartisan now to more of the partisan. Well, you know, I think uh, I, I think maybe we are. I, I think, you know, I think the New York Times and CNN would say, you know, we're just trying to get closer to the truth. I mean, you know, I don't think the New York Times is turning into MSNBC. Right. But, uh, you know, but I, you know, I think they realize they can't just become stenographers and take down everything that this particular president says uh, as if he spoke as past presidents did, you know, uh, you know, with great consideration for his words and the implication of his words and with, you know, a fair amount of uh, study and research behind them. He doesn't do that, particularly in his tweets. He doesn't do that. And and so they've had to adapt, adopt different strategies. We're speaking again with Mitchell Stevens, who's a professor of journalism at NYU. And Mitchell, do you do you think that um, because part of this that I that I just I think it exhausts a lot of people is Trump drops a crazy Trumpism in a tweet, and then all the major journalists and journal and, and organizations just start jumping and chasing it like it's critical. I mean, is are, are the are the is the media being too reactive to Trump, all supposedly in an effort to pretend like they're reporting everything, or should should they have more? I don't know. Should they have more a calmer, more focused approach on getting the facts of the administration and and pushing more other information out instead of always following that lead? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And uh, not obviously not an easy one to answer. There is no doubt that uh, you know there's some extent that Donald Trump is the uh, puppeteer pulling the strings, and the, and the media is kind of jumping uh, at each tweet. I mean, I was just looking at the latest Trump tweets this morning, and, <laughs> and the reaction pouring into them. At uh, you know, it's a little hard to say that the media needs to just focus on the facts of what he's doing because clear that there really are facts about what he's <laughs> and doing. And you may not be able to get to the facts either, right? Yeah. I mean, he's, it's not like this is, uh, a, you know, that there is there is a considered Trump policy on just about anything. Uh, there are, you know, there are bursts of, and statements that don't always check out. So it's a, it's a tough one for, 
for journalists. It's an incredible challenge for journalists, but in some ways, maybe it will be liberating for journalists. You know, we live in an entirely different media environment now. It's, you know, they're no longer, you know, one newsman being heard by the whole country as as was the case in Lowell Thomas's era, or, you know, three major newscasts, as was the case in Walter Cronkite's era, and Tom Brokaw's era. Uh, you know, news comes at us, now, at us now from all sorts of different directions. And, and, you know, so beyond Donald Trump, I think that journalism has to react to this situation. And maybe now it's possible again to have... Uh, a New York Times that uh, sees itself as uh, representing a certain point of view and a Wall Street Journal that represents another point of view and, uh, you know, and a Fox and a Breitbart and a MSNBC, you know, maybe in this new, wilder, uh, more variegated media environment, we can, uh, uh, you know, nonpartisanship uh, ought to fade. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And and it's and I think it's it's that complicated. It's 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 that complicated. There there is no longer just the one source journalism uh you know access point. Well, Mitchell, we appreciate you. Uh Professor Mitchell Stevens again. Thank you for your time. Your uh, your great insights as a professor of journalism at NYU and just helping us understand what is going on with the media and John Stewart, isn't it ironic that you have to bring in John Stewart as one of the great, I mean, as a comedian who also can shine a light on journalism in such a way that uh, it gets the rest of us thinking. Powerful stuff. By the way, you can go get that book that uh, we were just talking about with Mitchell, The Voice of America, Lowell Thomas and the Invention of the 20th Century Journalism. Um, I think it's good that we all understand what's going on in our world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner you know, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. And we're back, friends. But uh, g- a great interview, an interesting point about... Journalism used to be one something that we could, you know, we were fighting with a bias, right? And he brought up a good point. As 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 a democracy, are we are we um, are we so objective that we don't need to even support democracy, free market economy? Can we are we unbiased about that, or do we have an inherent bias? Do we have an inherent bias that technology is awesome and that America is the best? Yes. Sure. So if we, have, <laughs> if we have the bias, then why do we pretend like we don't? We do. We have it. Well, I think – don't we all kind of start from there? We're pro our country and then we start from there and try to not just well, – I mean you can focus on a topic and really shade it one direction. Right. 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 But if you – and that's – I guess what you've talked about earlier was just the idea that you know people – will let you know what their bias is before you even start talking. And if you yeah. do that, then you then you understand where they're coming from and you can take that into account when you're reading their opinions. Right. But a lot of times you don't get that 
beforehand. And so you read everything and like, is this fact or is this person just kind of telling you what they think? And right. it's kind of hard to see that sometimes in reporting. Well, and in – so we have sanctuary cities and people that report on sanctuary cities are going to come from a bias. Yeah. But, like, yeah. but if we're not saying my bias is this, that we should have open borders and allow people in and, you know, then all of a sudden – but by the way, the minute you say I believe in open borders – Certain journalists would say, ah, see, or certain sources, certain mm-hmm. sites would say, mm. You're biased. It's called biased. reading between the lines. So does a journalist need to come out and say, this is what I am? Or do they just let their work precede them? I don't know. I heard someone discussing this uh, yesterday in the idea of what they want to put out, say, on like on Twitter. That's something a lot yeah. that's come up. There's like Twitter ES- is who they are. There's some ESPN hosts that are in trouble, yeah. and New York Times are talking about they have a new policy. And it's like, what do you put out there? And the reporter's like, I want to st- do everything in my power to be non-bias. I want to put out just the information. And so everything we put on Twitter, he goes, I can't go a certain direction because that hurts my work. Yeah. He goes, but because I'm human, I have a bias. It's always there. You try to repress it when you're reporting, but it's going to be in there because it informs who you are and how you see things and how you even construct your words when you're putting a sentence together. But that's the dilemma. ESPN wants to build ratings, but then they hire Jamela. What's her name? Jamel Hill. Jamel Hill. And they're hiring her because she has an audience and has a voice and she's awesome and they hire her and they love her. And then when she starts to express her voice and her odd to her audience... They don't want it because it will offend other people that weren't in the demographic or whatever that they were looking for. Right. So then they. Sh- 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 and the last time she don't was. Don't do that. And this last time she was suspended because she was talking about how you should boycott an NFL team. Yeah, and now don't, you, you don't ever mention so you, the boycott. You cross into money and start. Yeah. Don't don't go to their advertisers if that's what you want. And so that at that point they they pulled her that's back it. because you start messing with money at that point. That's, see that's, that's the problem. Not a, that's not a political opinion. You're messing with the bottom line. In so 1930, that, when we started to aggregate huge audiences for our media, that then made them change into wanting audience. As much money as they can by having the 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 most vanilla flavor that everyone would so appreciate. Can media be everything to everyone? Is it, that possible? It doesn't seem like it, hmm. especially in a day and age where Jamel could go on and have her own blog, her own podcast, and she draw did. a huge audience, and yeah. that's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. They wanted that audience, but they also wanted to then control what she could say. Do you remember and, when uh, Walter Cronkite? beat himself up over getting emotional when he reported oh, yeah. that John F. Kennedy yeah. had been assassinated. Yeah. He he never forgave himself for that, it seems. Uh, he he didn't. But the, again, that's almost this illusion of what he had to be. Yeah. Because I'm going to bet doing that endeared a huge part of his audience oh, yeah. to him. And so then he, but he's beating himself up with the statement basically of, I've got to remain objective to the death of a yeah. person we loved. And... Everybody else is like, no, really, cry. Cry all you want. Like, this is good for yeah. us. Yeah. But then Dan Rather cried. You remember that was mm-hmm. a big deal? I mean, it's it's just there's an illusion to all of this. So maybe part of the key is we've got to understand there's business behind it. But I think going forward, it's – the winners are going to be – it seems like more – it's going to be very specific sites you want to go see. If you want to go find Jamel and her work, you can go find it. And she'll she'll aggregate a great big audience, and but never as big as ESPN. No, 
But ESPN won't be able to be big either because all of these people will have to start pulling off. But if, if say, like ESPN got what they wanted, someone yeah. just they talked about sports, they had no opinions about anything, they weren't happy, then they weren't sad, great you vanilla. end up with this vanilla, bland product right. that nobody wants to watch anyway. That's right. So I guess that comes back to the viewer and the, and the listener. What or, do you want? Or, or do the companies need to just be comfortable with opinion a little bit? Well, but can you? No, because they'll want to control that too because well, you go too far. Every and, one yeah. of those are controlled by big companies that can't have those opinions. And they need their stock prices oh, as high oh, as possible. Oh, journalism. We used to think it was just so clean. Mm. Did we? Well, we the general air quotes of we the people. Oh, gotcha. We have to be careful about certain companies that we mention on the air. Yeah. And what our opinion is of them. Yeah, you, don't want, you, you want to be nice to everyone. That's why we're very careful on the show to say things like Blick Blonalds. Blick Blonalds. And Blillies. Blendies. Yeah. Yeah. Too many, too many establishments with BL in their name. I know. We need to figure out a new. A Sorry, new that was a criticism of those fine establishments. No, that was not a criticism. No, of Blillies and, you know, you can't make fun of somebody just because their name is Blillies. No. What did Blilly ever do to you? That's a good point. I want my baby black, baby black, baby black. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a break, folks. Uh, continue the journey with us. Up next, uh, do a little Coach's Corner. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Uh, okay, it's anniversary time for somebody in the studio. Uh, I won't name names, but it is not my anniversary, nor is it uh, Terry's anniversary. Uh, the guy's name rhymes with Mrefmery Brimson. Yes, because we don't want to diminish the reputation or good name of this person. Him. Um, just got a, a, a question that's been plaguing him for, what, uh, two weeks as he's been preparing anxiously. Well, or at least 12 hours. No, that's... Okay. Two to three weeks. Okay. He's been trying to find the perfect anniversary present for his wife. So what do you get for somebody who says they really don't want an anniversary gift? You don't need to get me anything... First of all, are they saying that because they truly don't want anything or they haven't put any thought into the gift either and so they don't want to feel guilty when you get them something? That's probably it, right? Okay. But because you know the way you test it, and I've tested this before, don't get her anything. Okay. And then see if you get the cold shoulder that night. But the thing is, she says she hasn't planned on getting me anything, and I believe her. So, So watch what's happened. Anniversaries are not about getting something for someone. Anniversaries are about just showing you, showing your partner that that was the best decision you've ever made. And I care enough to send the very best. Hmm. A card from Blomark. From Blomark? Yeah. Okay. A Blomark card. Hmm. No, what you ought to do is still find it. Think of something that you used to do with her, something that what used to be really meaningful and just go get her that. And something simple, nothing more than $5. She did suggest getting cards. But, you know, we used to Playing we cards? used to get a ton of greeting cards. And we'd go out and we'd try to find the funniest one. But it seems like over the past few years, the more meaningful ones are just the handwritten notes that what we if, write to each other. Maybe just write her a note. 
write her a note mm. and get her get you know what I'd get her because I know you guys used to get her a slim jim a slim jim just a nice little jerky stick that and, was that used and to be just uh, say I'm sorry I'm such a jerky oh man you look slim to me wow after that baby and then I could also insert step into a slim jim <laughs> if if you need to you can do that and I promise, you put that in her hands, and she will melt into your arms. <laughs> With a note, by the way. A nice long note about why she's the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, don't cry. <laughs> Jeff loves those Slim Jims. Nothing makes a woman cry more than a Slim Jim. Anyway, folks, uh, that's our number one, you know. It's because we love you. We give you this great insight. We can't do it without you. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff Simpson and Terry South. And uh, today we've got a lot to cover. Uh, President Trump clarifying comments that he may or may not have made about soldiers when he had or hadn't called them after like presidents did or didn't do. It's confusing. Something as simple as making a phone call and expressing remorse, expressing some, uh, you know, condolences for the loss of a loved one, and somehow it's got all messed up. This was locker room talk. Certainly I'm not proud of it. (laughs) Any surprise, Matt? Uh, No. No. Sadly, no. So apparently he was Representative Frederica Wilson of Florida. Yeah. Her account of his phone call with the widow of the U.S. slain soldier, which she claimed the commander-in-chief told the soldier or said the soldier knew what he signed up for. So the scenario is the wife of the fallen soldier in a limousine being taken to the airport to recover the body. The remains of Mm. her husband. The president calls her. They put her on speakerphone in the car. Apparently there's like the wife and some family members are in there and then her representatives in there with her. And then President Trump says, well, he knew what he was getting or what was that? He knew what he signed up for. It was kind of one of his comments. Uh. And she starts bawling because that's not the time to discuss. I mean, obviously he did. He signed up for the military. But you don't go and express that as he's dead. No. You don't bring that up then. You understand the comment that he's making, like you said, Terry. But, yeah, not the right place for it. Well, and now he's saying that he didn't say that, that it's fake news. That the representative is lying. Alternative facts. And he has proof. Okay, great. Let's see it. Show it. it. <laughs> that would be great. I mean, really, that's what's so wonderful about proof. Well, then You the, can prove it. The story's also spun out further because Trump says he's called all of the fallen soldiers under his watch. Yeah. The AP starts calling people. Apparently not. Apparently there's three people out there saying, we never got a phone call from the president. Uh, and they've this, had fallen soldier. And so you get into this sort of back and forth about who's right, who's wrong. I'm like, 
It's he another. Was, he was going to call him. Yeah, it's it's just another example of him taking things way too far. When if he hadn't said, "I've got proof," we probably all just would have shrugged it off, just like every other thing he says, you know. Yeah. But instead, it's like, he says, "I've got proof." Well, now you're curious and, and you want to see it. Originally, it's he's, in his tax originally, plan. <laughs> originally, he said other presidents didn't call. Right. And then President Obama's people and, and, and President Bush. They're all like, hold, uh, hold, hold, hold the phone. Hold the phone. We did, too. And then he comes back with, yes, but John Kelly, the now he's chief the of chief staff. of staff, was the general. His son died in, I believe, in Afghanistan, stepped on a landmine, I believe. They're saying he did not get a phone call from President Obama. Oh, Interesting. Now, John Kelly does not talk about his child. Well, John Doesn't talk Kelly about was that a general, too. Yes. President Trump has brought it up in a, in a – was a pre, he was doing some sort of press conference or a, some sort of uh, like gathering of some kind, and he, was, he, he brought that up. Yeah. I think it was on Memorial Day, I believe. I can't remember exactly the situation, but he brought it up, told the whole story about it. John Kelly's never talked about it. He He'd rather not. I talk wonder if about he it. even had John Kelly's permission to talk about it. And that was by the way, if, too. If so, you're if you're if your uh, chief of staff is a general like John Kelly, you would think too that that going forward we'd be calling everybody. Yeah, and of course they called everyone after the media asked him, "Why haven't you?" And they're, yeah. "Oh, we'll get on that." Well, sometimes so, you just got to be a little remind a little reminder. Yeah, from I guess the media. on the surface of all this, this is the kind of thing. It's one little comment. It doesn't exactly yeah. matter. Right. But then everyone just runs like crazy right. to prove it wrong or prove it right. And that and, was like our last discussion. Yeah. So the media is going the, the media is going to create a frenzy around it. And yeah. the president may have made a mistake. And the funny thing is we'll never know because there won't be an admission. No, they just we, double and triple down. And, we'll gather data and the data may disprove what he's saying. And yet there will never be an admission when – but maybe too this is what happens when you have a lot fewer staffers. And Possibly. people watching every piece of minutia mm-hmm. of the White House. I mean, like President Obama used to write handwritten letters, I think, uh, every day. He'd write like one or two letters a day right. to he, people. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to do. But he said he did that because it always humbled. It always kept him centered back because he always had to communicate on the people-to-people level. So, I mean, the, the neat thing about all of this, there's always a best practice, right? We, I mean, there's right. things that other other presidents have done and – they might be valuable things. Yeah. Just maybe just learn. Just learn. I don't know. It's, it gets tiring trying to track all this stuff because yeah. in the end, it's you have a fallen soldier. Yeah. And that's what's important. Right. Not whether somebody was able to do some administrative thing to get a phone call through. This is the he said, she said that happens in this media world we're living in. I think you bring up a good point, though. With all the many things that the president has to worry about and think about, a, a little reminder doesn't hurt, and we could certainly forgive him for that. But maybe he needs like a compassion coach, somebody that can just give him some pointers I'll on do how to hey. do a regular, no. normal human phone call. <laughs> but I, I mean, Puerto Rico. I mean, no. it's just. I think it's just not who he is, and I guess a lot of people like that. That he can't show compassion that way? or Yeah. Hmm. I mean, then there's the moment that he kind of can for a minute, you know, but it's, well, just, it's just who he is. It's just that's just that's part of his persona. And hmm. as an employer and as a businessman, he's used to delivering bad news to people. So maybe yeah. he doesn't well, really know how to help comfort those who have been delivered bad news by somebody else. Apparently he had someone to do that. There's oh, a I question see. on if he actually ever fired anybody. 
He may have done it on the hey, TV show. Now, hold on. We've got it. We even have a sounder of him. I know. He may have done it on TV, but when it came down to actual his company, he may have yeah. had people for hmm. that. That may be. There was a story about that a while back I read. It was kind of funny. And maybe what we're learning, too, is this idea that if you're a really good businessman, you automatically become a really good president. Maybe I think we're, we're blowing that up. But maybe that's not the case. And by the way, nor would a really good quarterback be no. a really good president, nor would a really uh, good uh, movie star, former pro wrestler. Yeah. So uh, would would Mitt R&B Romney singer. would Mitt Romney have made a great president? I, we, I guess we don't know. But he, one thing mm, he did mm. have going for him is a little bit more of diplomacy. Okay. He's, he's, he's a kind he's of a more of very a diplomatic. Yeah. 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 And that's and that's probably the biggest thing is obviously President Trump is not a politician. Right. He doesn't have those skills developed over right. years that most of the people who end up in that office do have. He which, wasn't a governor of Massachusetts. Which right. isn't always a bad thing. No. Right. But, but you don't have those skills to deal with the day-to-day of what it means to be the president in the public I eye. I mean, right. Mitt Romney did leave his dog on the roof of the car. He did. I mean, oh. he, he had his heirs. It was <laughs> a horrible man. There will be dog lovers that will never like he, Romney. He may or may not have threatened people at the the Olympics <laughs> that he was the president. By the way. He may not have. He Actually, he did. I will confirm. He did run into me, push me out of the way, say, sorry, and then run up on the stage at the medals clause at the Olympics. He did do that. Yeah, but he was just in a hurry to but get then, up to get the medal. so did Hall of Fame quarterback Steve Young. They he both did it. I was just you. in the way. I was well, set, trying to set up a microphone. Sorry. I think when you look at it that way, then maybe, it's totally fine. Maybe when people look at you, they just want to know if they physically are able to push you. Is that what it is? Yeah. Like, I could take him. If I could push him over, that's a good thing. But By the way, both, there's, both did, of them, though, great hair. Did, oh, yeah. Did you hear <laughs> then, that? Then, maybe not now so much, but yeah. then. Yeah. Mitt Romney, by the way, they're saying maybe could go in and help save Puerto Rico. Yeah, I saw that. Put him in charge. Now, like, why wouldn't you? The guy is the master of, like, the rebuild. What they need is either that or they need that couple that's on TMZ. No, not TMZ. TLC. TMZ. <laughs> not TMZ. The TLC. house flipper guy. The, house, the, the people yeah. that can redo your house for you. Oh, right. uh, Send them in Chip Puerto and Rico. Joanna Gaines. Chip there and Joanna go. Gaines. Fixer yeah. Upper. They're, so it's either Mitt Romney or Chip and Joanna. This is the down. last season of their show, so they'll be free. That, they could have the Puerto Rico version. Yeah. And rebuild an entire island. How cool would that be? Oh, that'd be great. It would all look like Waco, Texas. But they're quitting their show to work on their marriage. They felt like the show was getting in the way of the marriage. The marriage or the family and their life. And they're making a lot of money with other businesses. All of their furniture would now have that really distressed look to it. Uh It's it's very in right now. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? President Trump on Tuesday threatened uh, Senator John McCain, who on Monday rallied against the president's half-baked nationalism. He said the president was asked by a radio talk show host about the Arizona Republicans warning against Trump's brand of spurious nationalism cooked up by people who would rather find scapegoats and solve problems. Trump's response? People have to be careful because at some point I fight back. You know, I'm being very nice. I'm, I'm being very, very nice. But at some point I fight back and it won't be pretty. Okay. Trump has a long history of throwing ugly barbs at longtime Republic at their longtime Republican lawnmaker. We go back to the he's not a war hero, war hero because he was captured. Not coming. But I like people who weren't captured. So you can fight back, but just yeah. fight back on the point he's making. The point is yeah. this fake nationalism that we're all pretending to live is what he's saying. But yeah. he's being nice now. Yeah. That could change. Okay. Uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson has had a tough go of it in eight months as the American's top diplomat. Uh, New York Times Magazine has a piece talking about uh, as the boss at ExxonMobil, Tillerson was the ultimate decision maker, as he told reporters in July, a post quite different from the one he occupies now, serving President Trump. 
as a foreign policy leader, or as Tillerson puts it, accommodating the president, whose whims often change, often on Twitter. He goes, I take what the president tweets out as his form of communicating, and I build it into my strategy, my tactics, Tillerson told the New York Times. I wake up the next morning, and the president's got a tweet out there. Okay, (laughs) that's a new condition. How do I want to use that, Tillerson said. The tense relationship between Tillerson and Trump has undercut the Secretary of State's external affairs, such as his efforts to mitigate this summer's Gulf state crisis and the internal proceedings like how one of Tillerson's preferred candidates for Deputy Secretary of State was undercut by the Trump administration because that guy had some negative things to say about Trump during the campaign. Mm. The frustration also occasionally leaks out in meetings. The writer notes, according to a former administration official in private conversations with aides and and friends, Tillerson refers to Trump in his Texas deadpan as the dealmaker-in-chief. And in meetings with Trump, according to people who've attended them, he increasingly rolls his eyes at the president's <laughs> remarks. But he, he handled that really well. So how do you like so, Mr. Tillerson, how do you handle the morning text? Well, I just like to wake up and look at the text and then see how I'm going to what right. I'm going to do with that. How am I going to roll that? Everyone my else strategy? would send a memo. Trump uses Twitter. I, it's right there. Right? That's good. Okay. The NFL had their meetings yesterday with the owners, league and players when it came to the oh, national yeah. anthem. Uh, And they punted. Didn't they just punt it down the road? Well, NFL NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said the league did not ask for any changes to the policy on the anthem. We spent today talking about the issues players are trying to bring attention to, issues in our communities to make our communities better. The policy that they're talking about says that they should stand for the anthem. Some people have suggested the league would need to change that to must stand for the anthem. Goodell said in the memo to teams last week that the NFL prefers players to stand, but they understand if they're going to have you know whatever their their protest is going to be the commissioner on tuesday called the discussion with the players productive and important he said it reflects our commitment to work together on issues of social justice he commended the players for their great character and deep understanding of their issues in their communities he said the commitment is admirable and the hmm. owners want to help them they will meet as, so with more meetings later on this year because everyone was saying oh the nfl's chasing trump doing whatever trump wants and now really what this is showing is they're really being conciliatory to the fact that the NFL players that are kneeling, there's community issues that need to be dealt with. Right. But will that change if numbers continue to dwindle and they start losing money? Well, I, I personally think if, if we could all just agree that no more than R would kneel. I mean, if, if, you don't, if it doesn't get worse, let's, keep, let's just keep it the same way it is and let's quit talking about it. Sure. Let us go work on the, the community issues with you. And then one by one, as we start to fix those, why don't you start standing? Could we do that? I still think there's a different outlet for it that's there, more oh, appropriate. There no, there is. There, I think there is, too. But it's, in the end, but it's I, the right thing. The NFL, I heard this this morning. The NFL is the same thing with the media. They're trying to be all things to every person. They're so big. They have an audience. They're across all political yep. spectrum here, right? So they can't go all the way one way no. or they offend their audience. They can't go all the way the other way. So they're trying to find a nice middle place. If people are kneeling, let's ignore it. Yeah. That would be the best thing. And by the way, they're kind of, they found a kind of a nice meet. So some can kneel, some can stand next to them, some link arms. The, but the more we focus on it, the more the bigger the problem is getting. And their media partners are not going to cover it just like they have always done. Oh, they some, haven't been covering it. They've right. never covered the national anthem. They take a commercial break. Probably because it's kind of weird. To, I mean, the only time you ever see actually the national anthem is the Super Bowl. 
Right. Or maybe a playoff game because they have someone, they, they get some they huge get the, star they, out Beyonce there. Now, yeah. And so they want to have the TV time. So, yeah. oh well. Okay. It, it, it's an ongoing situation. Finally, American alligators are frequently seen ambling around golf courses in Florida as players warily compete, complete their rounds. But new research suggests the reptiles partake in a far more outlandish habit when they're away from the greens. Ah. They eat sharks. What? How do they. How do they catch a shark? U.S. researchers have documented instances of alligators preying upon small sharks okay. along the Atlantic and Gulf Coast. A study published in the Journal of Southeastern Naturalists. I mean, which, I've caught a small shark. Right. They claim to be the first scientific study in the largely unseen struggle between the two feared predators. The frequency of one predator eating the other is really about a size dynamic, says the chief researcher from Kansas State, which is odd because Kansas State, they don't have either alligators or sharks. <laughs> Well, what was that? Similar sharp. That was an alligator. Wow. If a small shark swims by an alligator and the alligator feels like it can take the shark down, it will. But we will also review some old stories about larger sharks eating smaller alligators. So it's just about size. So what they did is they did a, about a 10-year study. They, they grabbed a bunch of alligators and uh, followed their nocturnal hunting activities. More than 500 alligators were caught. Their stomachs were pumped to see what they had consumed, mm. and they found fish, crustaceans, snails, and a few of them had small species of sharks and stingrays. The sharks were like three to four feet long. Wow. So if they felt like they could take it, Do you remember, they took down the, the, the shark. I'm sure you don't remember this, but back in the day when, shark, when Jaws came out, right. they had a Jaws shark that you could get as a toy. Oh, wow. And inside, you could open up the belly and pull out like a license plate. Oh, yeah, yeah. A and toilet seat. A toilet seat, yeah. Yeah, there's all yeah. kinds of stuff in there. And now you could pull out a shark. Yeah. And a jellyfish. They'll eat anything. Well, you know. Mm, that's... Some some things go down kind of with maybe a smoky aftertaste, others with more of a fishy Maybe smell. a slight burn. Maybe a burn with the teeth or whatever. Mm, like a good salsa. <laughs> We've actually got a toilet seat story coming up. Really? Yeah. It's that's, part of the empty news. There, there's a tease for you. There, that's totally a tease for me. Um, talk about no beard day. Uh, I, don't, I noticed none of you were trying to grow a beard. No. Well, we're not allowed to. No, there's, there's like rules here. Yeah. You guys make that sound negative. I would do it in a heartbeat if we were allowed to. I'd grow a beard for sure. But I thought you weren't growing anybody here. My wife told me to get an exception to the no beard rule because uh, she said it's important for my marriage that I have a beard. Mm. <laughs> Did she say that? In in one way or four, or one shape or form. My wife doesn't care if I have a beard, but she does want me to wear my glasses. Hmm. You keep running into things? No, just because she likes me better with my glasses on. She wants the illusion that... You know, yeah. you're super smart. Is it the implied intelligence? <laughs> totally. Is that what it is? Okay. Yeah. And a bag over my head. Well, you know, it's you can't of, have all things. It's kind of rude. But... In the right lighting, the bag looks really good. <laughs> Man, with that bag on your head, you look fantastic. Interesting stuff, folks. Up next, we're going to be talking about some parenting tips for how to help your kids uh, with their anxiety as they go to school. It's a tough thing, right? Uh, little social anxiety. We'll get some some great insight from an educator on how to help them get into the school process and lose the anxiety. Straight ahead on the Matt Townsend Show. Anxious feelings are normal and expected during times of change or transition into 
when you think about it, kids going back to school, it's never an easy thing. Or kids actually going to school, it's never an easy thing, uh, especially as you as you kind of think about having to move up a grade. Maybe they just feel like they just barely last year got got ahead of the game. And so um, with our kids, it, it's important to help to understand how to transition them, especially if they're already suffering from the stress and, and a little anxiety in their life. Here with us today to give us some advice about how we can soften the blow of change and uh, and school is Michelle Bermani. She's the director of the Brookville Center for Children's Services in Long Island, New York, and has got some great insight on managing kids with anxiety in our education system. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome, Matt. It's a pleasure. Talk about, I mean, I, I had it with my kid Mm-hmm. Didn't want to go to kindergarten. We couldn't figure out why he was so averse to going and showing up and being there. And every time we'd drop him off, he'd have a breakdown. Later found out he had social anxiety. Right. Social anxiety is a is a very difficult thing for children as well as adults. And it's that fear that we have to just help them with, you know, and just give them those strategies and uh, interventions that can just really help them get over that. You know, think back to yourself when you were a child and think to some of those unknown fears for change and transitions. You know, I myself had it in kindergarten, didn't want to go, you know, jumping out of the car, crying, clinging to my mother. So we have to, you know, start when they're young and just give them those open conversations and just really instill the importance of honesty with them that they're not in trouble and letting them know that we're here for them and just do those routines and schedules with them and and just help give them the support that they need. How do you you know? I mean, we knew because he wouldn't get out of the car. Um, But how do you you know your kid is is suffering from social anxiety or, or, or anxiety in general, I guess? Well, there could be some soft signs where they just start getting quiet um, or they're overly anxious and they're overly um, hyperactive. Um, They may just start doing repetitive things over and over again. You know, they're doing some task avoidance. You know, there's there's a couple of ways that you can try and and they may be asking you questions over and over again. You know, like what time are we going? When are we going? Is it time to go? Mm Mm-hmm. Those are clear signs that they're getting a little anxious. They may be quiet signs that they're picking on their nails or pulling on their clothes or twiddling their hair. You know, those are all little soft signs. In fact, um, our kids, too, they're always asking, so are we going anywhere today? What are we doing? They they start, they're anticipating our schedule. In fact, they anticipate our schedule more than I do. Yeah, and that's why it's really important, like I mentioned schedules and routines before, it's really important that we uh, let them know, like, you know, first we're going to do this and next we're going to do that and that they know what it is. And it's really important to like, have pictures in there and use a calendar with little pictures for the little ones and for the older ones that are able to read words, you know, or, or, or give both pictures and words and let them know what what's going to be in their day. You know, a lot of times during the school year, Monday through Friday, they know what's going to come next because they've gotten used to that routine. But before they've gotten used to it, we need to provide them with that information. And weekends are really hard for kids, too, because it's so open-ended. And then, bam, here comes Monday. Yeah, no, I know a lot of kids, too, that, you know, on Sunday they almost fall into a funk. Yeah, because yeah. they're thinking tomorrow I've got that class again, and yeah, I got to face that teacher or that bully kid in the hallway. Yeah, so it's very hard. One thing too um, that I think we could probably take more advantage of are like, especially when in the younger grades, 
you can go visit the teacher. You can go visit the class mm-hmm. before the year starts, right? And you can get them in, show them where their rooms are, show them where their lockers would be, show Absolutely. them where they hang everything up. Yep. So besides, you know, prepping them and organizing them, set up a tour, set up a visit, you know, help, have them help with getting the supplies, you know, get a map of the neighborhood and where the school is, map out the school as well, like what's their route from class to class. You know, and pictures are really great. And if it's a child with a disability, you know, social stories by Carol Gray are really important. You can make your own. You know, each day you have a different social story for each day. And putting pictures, you know, today is Monday. I'm going to get up and, um, you know, brush my teeth and eat my breakfast, get on the bus, go to my school, my first classes, you know, whatever it is. And you're going to put all the sentences and pictures in to go with that. And you read it with them several times. Yeah. And, you know? and kind of process it with them. Yep, absolutely. Because that processing and for transitioning is so important. Now, in your in your organization, um, as the director at Brookfield Center for Children's Services, mm-hmm. you, you put together some points uh, for parents, I guess, and, and really, I guess, caregivers. One of your points is uh, to encourage your child to share his or her fears. I mean, right. I, I, it seems like a lot of times with anxiety, we might just pat them on the head and say, yeah, don't worry, you'll be fine. But yeah, you're, no, you want them to good. open up. <laughs> Yeah, you want to start those open conversations with them and use your own examples of yourself or your family members or a really good friend so that you're having that connection and communication with them, that they're not letting them know that they're not alone in this, that we've gone through this and then these are ways that we can help because you just have to let them know that it's true, like there are these fears and people go through it, but there is a way out of it. There's an end in sight, you know, that they can... They can have it. So, you know, a good way of helping them is like role playing to help them through their anxiety. It's an excellent tool to help them deal with anxiety, stress, and frustration. So, it's it's non-threatening. You can use dolls and puppets and dress up and act out those situations and reenact uh, events that may have happened just to let them take the lead. Hmm. And through there, letting them take the lead and watch what's going on in their play, you could pick up a lot of things that are bothering them that you had no idea about. It's so true. And um, and again, it's it, it, because they already like to play anyway, and their minds are so creative. If you could, mm-hmm. I guess, engage the creativity to solve future problems, they right. I mean, it might be a natural way to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Talk about um, another uh, kind of point you make is is we really want them to learn to solve problems. You don't That's you don't right. want to take the anxiety, the anxious moment away from them. You want them to learn to adapt and fix it. Right. Right. So helping them prepare and organize is a really important thing. You know, so we talked about the tours and the visits and the social stories, but to help them, giving them those strategies. So little ones, you know, self-coping techniques can be like bubbles and pinwheels and feathers and yoga because you're teaching them self-coping techniques, you know, for and for older ones, too, like yoga, um, using the computer or apps because there's wonderful apps and there's a, a Intervention Central is a great uh, website to go to, Jim Wright, using visual timers, because the more you teach them self-coping techniques, the more they're empowering themselves to get through these difficult situations. What was the name of the website with Jim Wright? Uh, Intervention Central. And that just te- that gives them a lot of other interventions they could oh, take. Oh, tons. It's, it's filled with so many. I mean, teachers use them, parents use them, 
you know, kids use them. So they have really great things. That's awesome. Because, yeah. I mean, that that's part of the key is one solution may not fit your kid, but right. when you have hundreds and hundreds, you'll find a dozen or so that do. Right. And, you know, especially teens, they, they're very anxious. You know, it's not just the little ones. It's teens, too, who are like the hidden ones. And they're, with all the social media going on and the use of cell phones, they won't stand out if they're using their cell phone and they can use, uh, you know, it's loaded with apps in there, but it comes with schedules and notes and the reminders and they can text themselves. So it'll give them things that it just looks like they're texting or something on their yeah, phone. Yeah, they're just they're really working. Using these apps to help them. That's great. I mean, yeah. that's what's so neat about this day and age. I, I mean, part of it, I guess, is just you almost you got to be careful even defining or diagnosing the term social anxiety because right. for a for a for even a teenager it's it's yeah. overwhelming to think that you're already broken yeah yeah and, and so many of us have it that people don't even realize right you know uh i think about my most of my uh my my kids and my husband are just uh like to just stay home you know like they they get a little anxious going out and these are things that help them, even myself. Like, we just get comfortable staying home in this world of social media because everything gets posted out there. Yeah. So, so true. You know, what are some other techniques we should be sure we're paying attention to or, you know, tips uh, to get our kids to, to feel okay going back to school or being in school? I think the most important thing is really for the, the child to have a routine. You know, that'll help build confidence. It'll decrease anxiety and stress and frustration, and it'll keep them organized so they know what to expect next. Hmm. And um, having routines are so important. And if you have to change the routine, prep them ahead of time. Like, you know, today we were supposed to, uh, in school, you were going to have this field trip, but it's got canceled. So that you're going to, the teacher's going to do something different instead. So it's okay that you're not going to have that field trip. Maybe they'll have a speaker or a movie instead. Or, um, you know, if it's at home routine that's being changed, like if some, somebody was supposed to come over or they were supposed to go somewhere, let them know that there's that change in the routine. And if they're little ones, you want to use pictures. Older ones, you want to use words. You know, I mentioned that social story. It's really important to, to prepare them so that they can deal with that. You can't just, when someone has social anxiety, you can't just be like, okay, let's go. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can't internalize that. So you want to use those schedules and pictures. If they're older ones, you want to use the cell phone using schedules and reminders and calendars and notes. Um, You know, children communicate differently. So every child is very unique, and they communicate in their own way. They have different experiences. You know, we at Brookville Center for Children for Services and AHRC NASA, we work on this because every child has their own soothing techniques. It's so important to tap into the way that they communicate with different experiences. So you have to look at that. Are they a visual learner? Are they an auditory learner? Are they a tactile learner or multisensory? You have to look to see what they're doing and how they learn so that you can give back to them in the way that they're processing information. Now, do you – I mean, I guess, too, you could sit down and speak with uh, the school officials as well. Like I know with our situation, we we needed a school counselor to tell us what was going on, so we – quit trying to just push the hand. And then once we understood it, 
Um, then we had a school principal, that Dr. Vicciarelli, the most amazing guy ever, who would right. wait out front. And every time we'd pull up, we'd open our door and he would gently grab my child and yeah, take yeah. him. And he, my child would cry, but he would take him right into the office to kind of make, to help him self-soothe and, 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 and take care of his emotion. Then he'd move him to the class. And here's a crazy story. Eventually, after um, doing that for two, a month or so, my son was able to do it all by himself, figured out how to do it. Mm-hmm. But at my son's high school graduation, he performed in front of 5,000 people, sang a solo, um, wow. put together this whole musical number. And um, at the practice, when they were practicing it, Dr. Vicciarelli, this pr- this principal who used to pull him out of the car, <laughs> showed up at the, at, the tr- at the practice to just give him a hug and wish him luck. Oh, that is awesome. So we have a similar story. Our neighbor, very good friends of ours. He used to jump out of the bus going to elementary school and run all the way back home. (laughs) Can you imagine that? And then when he got older and he graduated college, he started playing professional football in front of thousands of people in the stands. You know, it's like amazing when you think back. It really is. Who has the social anxiety and what they have the potential to be and do. And it's all that running. All that running helped him be a better athlete. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because he was that running back. Oh, what a Um, great story. Yeah. It's normal, isn't it? You're saying this is a normal thing. People suffer is. this. Look at me. I, I used to cling to my mother, scream and cry and carry on. I didn't want to go to kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. And then in high school, you know, that principal telling my mother, just get her married off. She'll never amount to anything. And look at me now. I have my doctorate just yeah. recently in September. I'm a director at Brookville Center. And I do, you know, public speaking and uh, professional development for people. And I do have social anxiety. Yeah. You know, so it's. You know, parents are very concerned that their child reaches their developmental milestones at certain times. And listen, it's okay if they don't reach them at certain times. You give them the strategies and interventions and skills and activities for them, and you work with them, and you never give up because they'll reach them at, at different times. It's, not, it's okay that Susie's daughter did it at 12 months and that your daughter or son didn't do it until 18 months. That's okay. That's they fine. They reach them. Right. I you guess know. that's part of the deal is how do we make sure we're not kind of becoming – a helicopter parent or a hovering parent that that actually impedes their ability to do it. Yeah, because sometimes our anxiety gets pushed onto them and creates their anxiety. So we have to just take those deep cleansing breaths every hour on the hour and just have fun with our children and get down and play with them because so many parents don't sit down and play with their kids. We've turned into a world of, of social media. Yeah. And um, we just really need to have fun with our kids and just help them, you know, have those conversations that we don't have. Sit down and have that dinner together because we really don't do that. We're not, uh, you know, not monitoring them and engaging with them. We want to engage with them. Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, too, engaging with them, it seems like it would also help them eventually with social skills and maybe give them – a little bit more confidence in how to handle those situations. Absolutely. Let's go back to, you know, let's go out and ride a bike and kick around a ball and go do like little kicker soccer and, you know, little, you know, little baseball and football and just engage with them and let them go on to some of these teams and instead of sitting around with the laptop and the iPhones. Like, yes, they're fun, but we need to just interact with people. Well, and it's, do you sense as an educator that, 
all this technology, it is great to a point, but um, it, it, do you think it's causing some of this anxiety? Because it seems like anxiety is is on the rise more with our with our youth yeah, and our children. I think that it has a, a good portion to it because you're communicating through something electronic. You're not communicating to a human being. So you don't have that ability to look at those social skills. You're not looking at the facial reactions and the body reactions. You know, you're just typing in sentences and words into a electronic. Yeah. So you're not having that social interaction. So then when you have to have those social interactions, you never learn them. You never got to monitor them and, and exchange and change and react to them. So it's it's really um, it, it's there. You know, you want to start those communication lines early so you learn them early and learn how to process and adapt to them. Hmm. So true. Uh, yeah. as, as we wrap it up, what would you say is the one thing, if there's one thing I could do today as a parent, just mm-hmm. the one thing that might have the most impact to help uh, connect to my child, maybe help them learn this this about how to manage their social anxiety, what's that one thing? I think talking to them and giving them examples that you went, you're, you've had these things and it's okay and we'll work together talking to them. Yeah, we can make this work. Absolutely. Good stuff. Michelle Bermani, thank you so much for your time and for your great work and also your great work you're doing there at the director of the Brookville Center for Children's Services in Long Island, New York, helping us all overcome our social anxiety and maybe most importantly, guiding our kids uh, back on a path that, uh, that creates more confidence. Powerful stuff. Up next, we'll be talking about the empty news with uh, Jeff Simpson, straight ahead on The Matt Townsend Show. Time to get to the empty news uh, portion of the Matt Townsend Show. Who better to lead us in that than Jeffrey Liam Simpson? The empty news team. First on the scene, fifth on facts. Jeffrey, what's the strangest thing you've ever collected? Hmm. Hermit crab shells. You've collected hermit crab shells? Well, I didn't collect them. I used to have hermit crabs as, um, a, as a pet. Okay. But I couldn't keep any of them alive. Hmm. So then I just collected their shells. What did you feed them? Lettuce. Hmm. Maybe that was it. And Wheaties. Don't you know the saying, man cannot live by lettuce alone? No. I just remember the saying, let us rejoice. That was okay. Okay. Um, What's the strangest thing you've ever purchased? I can't talk about that. Probably best not to do that. (laughs) So... In Japan, yeah, people are buying collectible manhole covers. Come again? Manhole covers. In the road, manhole covers? Like those big metal... So there's a city in yeah. central Japan, and they're holding a lottery for decorative manhole covers after a sale offer became 20 times oversubscribed. Wow. Popular, yeah. I, popular item. So Maebashi, which is 77 miles north of Tokyo, put 10 uh, secondhand manhole covers on the market for around $27. It's not a bad deal. Not a right? bad deal, no. With three different designs and was surprised to receive over 200 applications to buy them. 
The winners may have grabbed a bargain given that the new uh, the cover. Uh, let's see. Given that new covers cost some five hundred thirty three dollars wow. each. But uh, some of the lucky collectors have still yet to decide what to do with them. Listen to this. One buyer who, uh, by the way, took the day off of work to drive up the <laughs> 77 miles to, to Tokyo or from Tokyo to collect his 88-pound purchase shares the dilemma of many people who, made, who make off-the-wall purchases, where to keep it, and now that he's got it. I'll put it well, in my porch, then I'll think about what to do with it. It's 88 pounds. You can't, like... You can't hang it. At $27, though, you're kind of losing money if you don't buy it, right? Mm. So Japanese manhole covers attract the attention of collectors from all over the country due to their decorative designs. Last year, a company released a set of drain cover collector's cards complete with coordinates so that (laughs) drain spotters could pay their favorites a visit. They're going fast. They're, They're flying off the shelf. They're selling like manhole covers. <laughs> That's going to be the new phrase. But let's remember what they're covering. Sewage, you know, pipes and I mean maybe that's not something you want in your house. That's a good point. Just bringing that up. That's a good up. point. That's why he's putting it on his porch. Okay. So, uh here's another story. We do have another uh interesting collection story here in a minute. But uh, Pittsburgh police say they're looking for a clumsy crook who robbed a convenience store while wearing a Darth Vader mask. Oh, so another one of no. these stories, he may have gotten it from the crook closet. I'm sure who he knows. One of our great Police sponsors. spokeswoman says the suspect had a knife when he entered the store about 12.45 a.m. Wednesday. As the man came around the counter after demanding money, he tripped and fell into a floor fan. <laughs> Ooh. A floor fan? Okay. Can you imagine the cleanup on that? Police say the suspect took some money, then ran away. Despite the mask, police say the clerk described the robber as a slightly built black man, about five foot five and 110 pounds. In addition to the Star Wars villain's mask, the suspect wore a black hooded sweatshirt and shoes and khaki pants. See, you can't you, be a five you, foot five Darth you Vader. You can't cut corners on the Darth Vader costume. So he's His certainly would be different yeah. than Darth. It's yeah. more asthmatic. Yeah. Um, he certainly did not get it from the crook closet. Then, no, he didn't. Sounds like no. And you know, again, fell into a floor yeah. fan. Okay, here's the other interesting collection story. There's a man in Texas. Yeah, and he's got this unique collection of toilet seat art. Okay, let me just repeat that: toilet seat art. Well, is the art on the toilet seat? I think so. Or is is there art made of toilet seats? It, I think it goes both ways. And it could be a collection of, you know, maybe famous toilet seats. Oh, like so-and-so sat so, here? <laughs> so uh, he created it. He's been, he's been uh, creating it for about half a century. Wow. Barney Smith is 69. He's offering his toilet seat art museum, art museum of toilet seats. I'll repeat that. Containing more than 1,300 hand-decorated toilet seats to the highest bidder. Wow. He thanks all the thousands of people coming from all around the world for the last 50 or so years. A post on the museum's Facebook page states, Clorox, yeah, that's a brand we're allowed to name, yeah, launched an online campaign to help find Smith a buyer, including a digital gallery of his toilet seat art. Smith says he decided it was time to sell the museum after noticing he wasn't able to produce art as quickly in his old age. I can't do what I used to do, he said. I, I remember when I could pump out five pieces of toilet art. <laughs> 
Uh, because I'm getting old. I'm 96 years old. Oh, that's cute. Sorry, I should have made that older. He's seeking between $15,000 and $20,000 for the museum. Again, at that price, it's like you lose money if you don't buy it. <laughs> and he hopes to find a buyer dedicated to preserving the collection. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we actually we have a little bit of audio from an auction that was going on for oh. this toilet seat Art museum. Okay, great. How many other times are you going to say that in your life? I'm sure it'll never be said again. Our next item up for sale, ladies and gentlemen, is this stunning collection of toilet seat art. This collection features over 1,300 hand-decorated seats, acquired over a 50-year period. Many of the seats at one time belonged to various celebrities across the globe. You will find among the collection the toilet seats of Richard Chamberlain, Elvis Presley, and even Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Do I hear $10,000? Thank you, sir. Our first bid is for $10,000 to the gentleman with the mullet wearing an achy-breaky heart tank top. BYU Radio. Talk about good. It's the House of Bows. McKenna Baus is with us. She is Baus in the house. She gives us, she brings us little mind benders to make us think, hey, maybe you ought to look at it another way. Today you're talking about overqualified, smart employees may be dangerous. Yeah. So a lot of times we think, you know, when we're going to hire and we're looking to have somebody fill a role, we want to get whoever has the most qualifications. Yeah, get, get the mo- Why not? Why wouldn't you want the most qualified person? Exactly. If they're able to do more and do it better, then you know, you're going to think this is going to be good more for the company, right. for the team, and that is not actually the case. <gasps> what? Yeah. It's really interesting. So part of the problem is that when people are put into positions that they feel overqualified for, mm-hmm. it is really, really bad for morale. They feel bored. Yeah. They feel like they are maybe not appreciated enough, um, and they just have a hard time engaging. They don't want what they have. Exactly. So they're always looking for something else. Yeah, and so the quality of work tanks. A lot of times, too, what happens is their boredom and their you know, just frustration, yeah. it's contagious to the other employees, and so it can sort of infect an office so true and bring down people who maybe aren't having that same problem of overqualification well i mean imagine that you feel so lucky to have the job you do you are barely qualified for it and then your coworker next to you is overqualified doesn't want it and is miserable and really wants your their boss's job yeah it's gonna you know create a lot of resentment there. And a big reason this is happening is because there's this trend where companies are using college degrees as this sort of like bar, like, you know, lowest standard bar of entry. Like if you have a college degree, you can get the job. But they're using that in a lot of cases to fill jobs that traditionally did not require a degree. Oh, boy. So so now all of a sudden you have an overqualified employee just because the degree is what we're after. Exactly. It's sort of this expectation that there's yeah. must be a college degree for everything has caused a kind of job inflation. Mm. And maybe they don't want to – maybe in the end that's going to hurt you too because um, you they may not want the job very long. Mm-hmm. They'll leave as soon as there's a better one. Yeah. And then you've already kind of burned everyone around them too. And if you keep doing that, 
Yeah, it's, it's a job inflation. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of the problem is, is because of that expectation for the college degrees, there's not a ton that employers can necessarily do if it's a, you know, company policy, things like that. Right. And so it's something that can help because this is just sort of a trend. There are going to be overqualified workers in yeah. just about every position is if there are those people who are overqualified, try and give them really creative, heavy Projects give them long-term projects. Those tend to help keep them stretch engaged them, yeah. longer and stretch them in ways that they wouldn't be otherwise. Though that sort of comes with the caveat. You have to be careful because if it's perceived that these people who are already sort of have low morale and are frustrated, if their you know, co-workers yeah. perceive that they're getting the cool assignments – it's going to further – Then it will backfire. It will backfire. So you have to be careful. Well, and this, there's a big movement about engagement and how disengaged our employees are. And so they're going to be less engaged if they're overqualified. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, um, you, you start creating a culture of disengagement. Yeah. You're going to lose a lot of power in your team. Exactly. So – one of the things that they have also has shown has helped is if they are overqualified, if you're able to make sure that they have good interpersonal skills, the effects of the negative effects of being overqualified are going to be lessened. So if yeah. you can focus on building those within your teams, you're going to be a lot better off. Good stuff. McKenna Baus bending our mind about employment. It's not enough to just get a job. You're going to want a job that you're actually – you know, well qualified for exactly, and one that stretches you. Yeah, you want you want to be in that happy that medium. happy flow space. They call it. You got to get into flow. McKenna, thank you. Great insight. That's our goal on the show to help you uh, be the good in the world to get you in that right spot for your life. Uh, we'll continue the journey uh, next hour. Up next, by the way, BBC Broadcasting. It's a house of bows. It's a house of bows. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and welcome to the program, the Dr. Matt Show. This is the place where we give you a leg up in life, help you uh, get the latest, the greatest information that you need to make the big decisions of life. Today, no exception. We're going to be talking about a lot of things. Are you going to sing the rest of your show? Yeah, little Ethel Merman there. You'll be swell. <laughs> oh, you sounded like... Uh, um, who's, who, was in the show, who was in the movie on Golden Pond? Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn, Matt Townsend. <laughs> wow. Joined by Catherine Hepburn today. With a little raspy, deeper voice because of all the cheers for the Dodgers. Catherine Hepburn <laughs> loves the Dodgers. Loved. She, we lost her. Well, she still loves the Dodgers. I guess. I mean. From the great beyond. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe it's the Angels she's watching now. <laughs> we just kind of let that sit there. <laughs> it's pretty profound when you think about it. They don't have crickets in heaven. Or maybe they don't watch baseball at all. <laughs> no, maybe they, they have better things to do than watch sports. No, they have baseball. Really? Oh, yeah. Why? Why wouldn't you? I think for a lot of men, 
if sports were not in heaven or the ability to not be able, you know, you couldn't yeah. watch sports, it wouldn't be heaven. It wouldn't seem like heaven. Wouldn't the sport be watching us down here just kind of, you know. They placing bets or mud- something. Muddling around like, man, these people, what are they yeah. doing? Yeah, maybe they are. I bet you 100 bucks. President Trump blows this, this one conversation with the widow. Maybe. As long as we can eat nachos while we do it. It's always about nachos. Isn't By it? the way, notch, it's not because my sister's dog's name is Nacho. And every time you think of Sounds eating it, and no, he's not. No, no. he's a cute little. <laughs> now, what's your perception, Matt? Is heaven a personal situation, or do you think we'll all experience the same situation? I think it will be both. So, will I have taco not my trees? heaven? Will I have taco trees? Taco trees. Ooh, I want tacos oh. that grow on trees. No, because then they just sort of reproduce. No, and you, have you more will tacos. obviously not. You will be eating at a cafeteria. That'd be great because then you would no longer be able to use the excuse to your son. Tacos don't grow on trees. That's right. You're right there. They are. Son, I want you to get outside right now and rake those tacos up. <laughs> I don't know if it would live up to heaven it's if, not, if there isn't a taco tree. You don't want a taco tree. I really it's do. It's not natural. It's That's what I'm talking about. No, but see, heaven's going to be natural. You can do it's whatever you want it to be. totally it's right. What, could it, is it possibly whatever you want it to be? Well, I don't Will know. you have your own personal concept? Let me ask you this. Yeah. Is um, if, if – I guess if your taco meat comes from a tree, then this might be possible. Oh, this will all be like FDA quality, no problem. No, no that means you got to grow cows on trees. No, it doesn't come from cows. It just sort of happens. But are cows going to be in heaven? You don't question the science. Yes, cows you just will let be it in happen, heaven. Matt. I think we should open this up to our listeners. Yeah. What does heaven look like for you? It's a great question. Tweet us at Dr. Matt Show. What does heaven, what must be there to constitute heaven? Taco trees and a lazy boy. No, well, heaven. Right there. <laughs> oh, lazy boy. For and the sure. tree is totally within reach, so you don't have to like really overexert to get out of the chair. So in it's any almost way. like the tree bends down like a server yeah, and says, there you go. "Hello, you look like you're ready for a taco." That's right. Or there might, might be somebody who maybe they feel like they would like to serve others, and they will just pick the tacos and bring them to me. Oh, a taco picker. Yeah. That just doesn't sound right. I don't know. I'm just saying. A lot of people think of heavenly choirs. Hallelujah. Hmm. I think would you like a taco, sir? <laughs> I think for my wife, heaven would not include the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> what? She's not a huge fan. They're the best on earth. Yeah, a couple times a year, you're good. No, 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 no. People have it on repeat all day long. It's like, come on, man. It's There's the other things to experience. It's the spirit. Thou doth protest the spirit. Yeah. Well. I think you're quoting Shakespeare there. Yeah, maybe. But me he thinks, me thinks, me sorry. thinks thou doth protest the spirit. I think Shakespeare loved the choir. Really? Yeah. Didn't he predate the choir by quite a bit? Well, no, I'm, getting I'm, talking, a, I'm talking about the one in heaven. Getting oh, okay. a Heber call right now that are probably <laughs> chiming in on the Mormon Tabernacle Choir debate. Oh, boy. This is exciting. Sorry. I derailed the show with taco trees. I'm so, sorry. Uh, it will happen again. Tweet us but... at Dr. Matt Show. What makes up your heaven? And taco trees already taken. Yep, can't do that one. As as our taco pickers that we pick it the tacos and hand them to you. We'll, we'll have a uh, we'll call them taco facilitators, harvesters, harvesters, because that doesn't that sounds better. That actually sounds a lot better. And then also, I think already taken are nachos. Yeah, um, nobody can have the nachos. What about why are we all? This is all Mexican food. Do we not appreciate the Italian cuisine? No, I would I would have a lasagna tree. Italian food seems more formal to me. 
I'll take the breadsticks. But wouldn't it be great? Like you have an Italian tree that just drops like lasagna. It just it just eh. sloughs off lasagna. Big eh. wads See, of lasagna. Lasagna maybe and... in a tortilla, so it's clean. No, 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 no. It's See, not a mess. It's tacos just... and nachos are not going to scald you like a hot lasagna would. Yeah. No, but this won't be hot. This will be nice, nice and warm. Who wants cold lasagna? Ooh, but uh, you'll have hot lasagna on a nice. Winter day. Okay. Lasagna just dropping from the lasagna tree. See, the good thing about nachos, the nacho cheese is just as good when it's cold. No, it's not. It's it, it's coagulated and anyway, don't want to get there. Okay. So we will um, we will be talking more about what heaven looks like to you if you'll send us in your uh, your ideas at Dr. Matt Show. Tweet us there. Um, we'll get them on the air. I promise. It'll be lots of fun for everybody. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? President Trump gave himself a pat on the back during an interview Tuesday, taking credit for the Islamic State giving up. U.S.-backed forces liberated Raqqa, Syria on Tuesday, seizing ISIS's de facto capital, and Trump declared his strong leadership was the reason. During the interview, Trump claimed that the U.S. was losing the war on terror before his administration took charge. CNN notes that Trump has applauded himself before for efforts against ISIS, glossing over the fact that the operations in Iraq and Syria began under former President Obama. Hold it, but um, but ISIS took credit for what happened in Vegas. Right. So is he responsible for that? And San Bernardino. So he's and not... And everything in France. Okay. Yeah. Just checking. Now, I mean, it's all part of this, but he, he gave himself a pat on the back. Atta Job boy. well done. Okay. President Trump uh, tumbled 92 spots on Forbes' 2017 list of the richest Americans... Uh, was, which was released on Tuesday due to a $600 million loss since taking uh, since the last ranking, which was last oh, year. Oh, boy, he's losing money. Forbes, which credited Trump with $1.3 billion, a far cry from Trump's $10 billion boast in 2015, says that the drop was due to the tough New York real estate market, particularly for retail locations, a costly lawsuit, and an expensive presidential campaign. Trump charted the 248th richest person in America in 2017, down from 156th. Oh, boy. In 2016, the magazine said the downgrading was also a result of new information as collected after Donald Trump had claimed during the campaign in 2015 that he owed 9.2 or he owned 9.2 billion in assets and 8.7 billion in net worth. The list is topped by Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Ellison and some the 400 richest Americans are worth a combined 2.7 billion dollars. Trillion. Wow. Just billion? They said billion. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, they got a bunch of it's billionaires. It's got to be trillion. It's got to be trillion. Typo. Wow, that's uh, that's a, that's sad for him. I mean, what a sacrifice to lose now, $600 million. He tweeted out there are some publications. He didn't name Forbes, but he said there are some publications printing fake news. What? And he says it's worse, and he listed all like the TV network, CNN, White House New York Times, all these people. He didn't mention Forbes, but he says it's fake news. Okay. It seems, I mean, pretty accurate. Well, for whatever, however Forbes puts that list. If they put him as the number one richest Mm. man on earth, it'd be pretty accurate to him. To him, sure, absolutely. Okay, just checking. Okay, starting in 2018, Manhattan's usually gridlock, usual gridlock traffic will have something new to contend with: self-driving cars. Matt, your dreams may be coming true. A fleet of Chevy. That's happened to you. A Mm -hmm. fleet of Chevy Bolts will be led by Cruise Automation, the self-driving unit of General Motors. With a five-mile area in New York City, a major change from the Empire State's previous strict regulations on autonomous vehicles, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that the uh, testing will happen in a geofenced area and that each car will drive with engineers in both drivers and passenger seats. 
<laughs> right? GM is one of the first companies to agree to New York's unique rules for self-driving cars. The law, which passed earlier this year, only allows a brief window for autonomous vehicle testing before it expires April 1st of 2018. Oh, boy. So everyone's out there getting it done. Well, GM is. It also requires a police escort for each self-driving car, the expense of which is paid for by the company. So you'll have a car. It can only go in this five-mile area of New York, New York City, right? And then you'll have engineers in both seats, and they'll have police escorts. As they well, test the cars. it doesn't seem like a great test. No, it doesn't Because at all. wouldn't you need, like, some bicyclist to jut, jut right in front of you and, yeah. and then Real another world, car right? to slam on its brakes? And- Automakers need to list specific vehicles being used for the test in their application. They must be covered by a $5 million insurance policy. Now you're going to have people running and getting run over by these cars. Oh, yeah, just just diving in front of them, yeah. Okay. So I don't know how much of a test, but the first steps, people are a little little unsure about the technology. By the way, we need to also speak about something that I haven't, I don't know that we've ever talked about, self-driving motorcycles. This is going to ruin motorcycles. Because you want and the person on the motorcycle. So is everybody going to be having a self-driving car except motorcyclists are going to be ride, driving their own? I don't know. So this may be the end of the Harley. What will a dentist drive? Yeah. Will how a, will they cope? How will, will self, they get to work? Will a self-driving motorcycle know how to maneuver in between the lanes? No, I don't think there will be self-driving motorcycles, mm. which means it's the end of motorcycles wow. as we know it. Well, <sighs> progress but, always has its victims, right? Mm-hmm. By the way, so I, on as part of my guys' weekend, I rode on a moped, had a great time. I came home and told my wife, I think I want to get a moped. And she looked at me and said, no way. And her reasoning was interesting. It what? wasn't It wasn't the money. What? It was a masculinity thing. What about so it? So I said, wait, you'd much rather I had a motorcycle than a moped? And she said, yeah, I don't want you driving around like this on a moped. Oh, and she made a little face. Wow. little gopher face. Wow. Well, the gopher was, face is right. I, I mean, was surprised. I mean, you don't want to... If you're going to ride a motorcycle or a moped, don't do the gopher face. She... I... She thought I would look like a sissy dweeb, I guess, on a moped. Oh, wow. wow that's a that's a, a tough conversation. You may need to deal with that off the show. What, the sissy dweeb or the motorcycle? Just the whole marriage situation no, that seems no. to be happening here. We'll this, this is where I get the free advice. I, it can only happen during the show. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll have to talk that one. <laughs> In other news, the announcement of the uh, next Star Wars movie title was announced yesterday. What? So we have the movie coming up in December, Star yeah. Wars. Yeah. The Last Jedi. I bought my tickets. I'm, I'm okay, Matt. Okay. I okay. have my tickets, just so you know. Yeah. Uh, also, after that, there'll be an off year, so they'll have one of these, a Star Wars story. They okay. can't take a year off. They did before. They they called it, uh, what was it, Rebel One, a Star Wars story. This yeah. one will be called Solo. Rogue One. Solo. Rogue One, that's right. Solo, a Star Wars story. It's about Han Solo. Oh, that is Solo. The no, lovable solo. smuggler turned hero. So, yeah, it'd just be called Solo. Solo. No. S-O-L-O. Does this sound interesting to you? It's Han Solo. His origin. You want to watch the trailer? How he got his spaceship. How he met Chewie. You got to find how he met Chewbacca. Come on. That's an interesting story. How low can you go? Yeah. Solo. And finally, speaking of big hairy beasts like Chewbacca. Yeah. uh, The legendary Bigfoot and other creatures like it have reportedly been spotted near a Northern California lake, according to a paranormal investigator. Whoa. 
Bigfoot sound right there. Is that Bigfoot? Jeffrey Gonzalez, a self-described paranormal expert, said he heard about the sighting from a local farmer who said he saw the creature and five others running on his ranch near Avocado Lake, which is in California, obviously. I bet it's green. One of them, which was extremely tall, had a pig over its shoulder, Gonzalez said. These comments were from Fox 26, a Fox affiliate, I imagine, in the Northern California area. Fox and friends. And the five scattered, and the one with the pig was running so fast it didn't see an irrigation pipe, and it tripped the pig flying over his shoulder. <gasps> a flying so pig? pigs fly. Well, he threw it. Oh, I have a lot of promises I have to keep then since pigs so fly now. They're th- actually thrown. So this account, not just <laughs> one Bigfoot, as it said, say five others? Said Alois, yeah, the creature and five. He saw six Bigfoots. Big fights. It was a family, a family of Bigfoots. <laughs> well, I, I think plural, Bigfootum or feats. Is it big feet? Big Footus. feet. Big feetsum. Footus. Fittism. Yeah, big, big footism. So, do you think there's a family of Sasquatch? No. And are they stealing pigs and tripping over irrigation pipes I in Northern that, California? That's this is obviously near Avocado here, Lake. Here's the solution. <laughs> that's a scout troop. Okay. <laughs> that, are, that need a shower. And they're playing a trick. All right, well. On everyone else. And they're like, hey, I don't want to go to Avocado Lake. It's such a boring lake. Hey, let's bring those Sasquatch outfits and let's go pretend to be a family of Sasquatch. They're photographs. Right. And people will take pictures of us. And they're not definitive, of course. Of course they're not. There's fuzzy things in the distance. They're Look, scouts. It's, it's, it's a Bigfoot. Like, oh, no, not really. Bigfootsome. Big, big fightsome. So is there a family that has been lost to time and they're stuck in the forest in Northern California by Avocado Lake? Well, by the way, I totally believe there is a family lost in time and in the forest in Avocado yeah. Lake from okay. California. I do believe that. Okay, but not a I Sasquatch. I don't think it's Sasquatch. The Sasquatch sightings are scout troops. Is that what it is? They have been. They All always right. have been. Just... That is what keeps that myth alive, scout troops. It's, they go hand in hand. That and getting a wedgie. That is what makes Scout Troop a fun trip. Okay. And somebody always has their shoe melt. Somebody is too close to the fire and their shoe melts, and that's part of that's right. part of scouting. We would always play Speed Spoon Uno. Come again? Speed Spoon Uno. So it's like it's a faster version of the of Uno where anybody that has a card that's laid down can play it. You want to be the first person to get rid of your cards. The person with the most points at the end of the game has to extend his arm out like this. Uh-oh. Everybody else takes a spoon and can whack him right in the uh, the the uh, elbow pit. The, there you go. Yeah, the elbow pit. Yeah, elbow. Yeah. Pit. The very sensitive elbow pit. Wow, that sounds... blisters, blood, crying. All of the good, fun stuff. That wow. only can be had at a scout trip. And then after you're done with that and everyone's sore, then you get on your Sasquatch outfit and you pretend to be a Sasquatch family. I'm telling you. I've been a scout. I know what this is about. I, I have too. Yeah. But you still want a moped. So you're also of the opinion that it's not manly. No, I actually think it's very manly. Do you? I mean, in a very effeminate way, it's very manly. <laughs> no, I love, I really do. I want a moped. My wife won't let me because they're dangerous. And she knows that I can ride a wheelie. I'm just talking about cruising around the neighborhood. Yeah. That can't be too dangerous. Right. Famous last words right there. What's the worst thing that could happen to a guy on a moped? <laughs> exactly. What's the worst? And, and then when you die with that beaver face that she's afraid you'll make, it's over. That's not the way you want to go down. 
Up next, folks, we will be talking with Dr. Ryan Willoughby um, about uh, the fears that come around and, and tend to, you know, invade our marriages. The fear of dating, the fear of getting married, the fear of divorce, the fear of losing ourselves. Lots of fear when it comes to our relationships. That's up next on The Matt Townsend Show. That is the scariest music you would never believe. We're about to talk to a, uh, a Ph.D. in uh, family sciences because it shouldn't be that scary. But it is. Dr. Brian Willoughby joins us. Brian is an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. And uh, he is he really has focused uh, and dedicated a lot of his research to studying and improving romantic relationships. Uh, Dr. Willoughby is also uh, an expert in dating, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation, marital attitudes, and hopefully you're here to help us lose the fear about marriage. That's right. That's what I'm here to do. Why is it so scary? It's like the most universal, you know, uh, quest people make, right? I mean, 80% of people in the world marry or whatever? Eventually. Eventually. But, but, but actually that's starting to change, which oh, is, is which is different because we do think that, that yeah. marriage is this universal thing. Everyone's going to do Everybody it. Everybody wants so it. Why are you Come scared on. of it? Right. But the trends are actually starting to shift. So for the first time now, we have just as many single people as married people in adulthood. On Earth. On Earth. Well, in the oh, U.S. in the U.S. Okay. In the U.S., yeah. yeah. It differs country to country. But in the U.S., it's, it's roughly about 50-50 now, which is different because it used to be the vast majority of people were married. Interesting. Everyone is married. But now when I look around, well, I see married couples, but then I see cohabiting couples. Yeah. I see single people. We know the average age of marriage is dramatically increasing. It has been for a long time. It's about 30 now wow. on average for men and women. And the the marriage rate has been steadily dropping. So just the number of people that get married per year has been, again, steadily decreasing. And so what all the trends are telling us is that marriage is slowly becoming something that is not quite as normative as it was before. It's not necessarily the normal thing to do yeah. anymore, although is, most is people it, still want to. What? So they, there's still the desire to. Right. But um, they're not doing it. They're not doing it. Exactly. So that is that why we believe it's fear? We, we think a big part of it is fear and anxiety. And, and it has to do with a lot of different overlapping fears that yeah. people have. But they're wor- so the, because they want to get married and because they want a quote-unquote good marriage, there's a lot of fears that go into it. A, a lot of fears that are based on the desire of what I want that marriage to look like, but then also a lot of fears based on what I think marriage is going to do to my life mm. once I make that transition. Right. It's like it's going to slow me down. It's going to ruin me. It's going to cost me. Right. That's that's one of the biggest fears people have is is this idea that marriage is a transition of loss is what me and my colleagues talk about, <laughs> that when I get married, I will lose things. I will lose freedom. Huh. I will potentially lose money. I will lose the ability to choose things as freely as I wanted to before. And so marriage becomes this thing that I do because I want to do it in some ways, right? I want want to have that lifelong love. But there's also this big part of me that says, once I do that, I'm going to lose all this stuff. No, where did that come from? Because it used to be, no, that's when life takes off. Right. You'll have family, you'll have kids, you'll have a partner. But that's, that's not what marriage is about anymore. That's true. Oh, it's not. It's not about kids. It's not about that. It's not about... Settling down. It's kind of about me. It's, yeah, we, we've talked about this yeah. before, right? It's, it's about being happy. That's what marriage Boy. is about. Yeah. And so if I 
am judging marriage based on I'm doing this because it makes me happy, well, then like anything in the world, my opportunity cost is what do I lose that makes me happy if I get married? Well, I, I like to travel. That makes me happy. Marriage might make me travel less. So yeah. is the happiness gained by marriage enough to outweigh the loss of happiness from not being able to travel for me anymore? Yeah. And so, so that's, that's one of the fears that's gaining in people's way is, is what, what am I going to lose that makes me happy by making this transition? What, what has happened to us that we're so self-focused? Mm-hmm. I mean, where did that come from? Well, it's this is where we like to dump on the millennials, right? Yeah, a little bit. Although I like to dump on the baby boomer parents that right. created that a lot of these them. attitudes yeah. that raised them. But if you think about your typical person in their twenties right now, they were they were raised for their entire life. Not necessarily. We, I don't think this is necessarily the self esteem. You're so awesome. You're yeah. so great. That's a part of it. But the the bigger part of it is that they were raised with this constant message of do what makes you happy. Yeah. You have the ability to choose your college or choose your education, to choose your job, and do all those things based on what makes you happy. That that was the baby boomer message. Right. I I'm stuck in this job I don't like. I'm stuck in this don't you know, do thing. That. I didn't I make you know, learn from all my mistakes and make yourself happy. That's the biggest thing in life is make yourself happy. Right. And we've given young adults all of these choices now and all these opportunities that whether I go to school or not, if I go in school, look, I've got hundreds of majors yeah. that I can pick from. And then I get to pick my job, and I get to pick and pick and pick and pick. And so that mentality has carried over into our relationships, where we've given them kind of ultimate choice to figure out what marriage and relationships are going to be like for them. Interesting. So it actually impacts our ability or how we see getting into it, Mm -hmm. what we should get out of it, so if marriage is good or not, and and when we should leave. Right. So it's – the scary thing about it is it's harder to get in. Once you're in, you're going to judge it harder. Right. And then getting out, you'll probably get out faster if you right. have the same paradigm. Yeah, especially if it's based on happiness. Yeah. Right? Because you could not be happy in a marriage a lot. Right. And it can still be a good, satisfying, and important stable and stable marriage. important essential thing, yeah. yeah. But, but if it is, if it's based on my happiness, then immediately what I start to do if we're having a bad week or a bad month is, again, I start to think about, well, what would I be doing if I wasn't with you? Right. Well, I could do this. I could do A, B, and yeah. C. And then it's romanticized. And then it's, like, hap- oh. it's happier over here. Yeah. Because it wouldn't be this. Right. I wouldn't have to like clean toilets every right. Saturday. Yeah. And you think, and you've, you've probably seen this a lot with couples you've talked about, is when you talk to these couples that are considering divorce, what's one of the big things they say? I'm just not happy. I'm not happy. I'm not happy all the time. Yeah. I'm not happy. I want what we used to have. Right. Yeah, well, when we were dating and we were happy and, it was all and everything was great. And everything yeah. was easy. And, and butterflies hard. and unicorns. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it, – it seems – but so then fear is what we feel, but it's not something to fear. But what you're right. afraid of is the loss of this paradigm you've been learning. Right. And, and like I said, a lot of it is – in the problematic thing, me and my colleagues have been talking about this a lot. I, I actually think this is my next book. Is I'm going to have to write yeah. this one. Is, is that because we're approaching marriage in this way, we know that this mindset doesn't actually work in terms of long-term stable marriages. Yeah. And so it's going to be fascinating to see what happens when this current generation is in their 50s and 60s and 70s, and maybe a lot of them have left these marriages or a lot of them are unhappy in their marriage. Is is what? In fact, one of the things that has happened in my field that we're talking about a lot is one of the segments of our population where the divorce rate has increased the most is in the older group, 50s and 60s and 70s. We're starting to see for the first time this group that is in their 50s and 60s and saying, I'm not happy. I I need to live. I don't have much life left. I got to live. I need live to live it. it. 
Interesting. No, I've seen that too. And so they're actually catching the same bug. Right. <laughs> scary. Yeah. Now that's scary <laughs> because what happens – But so eventually I guess we will see a backlash of this paradigm in a generation or potentially, two. Potentially, yeah. And, and really from a societal standpoint, what all of these things potentially mean to us that, that is worthy I think of some important conversations is that marriage might be on its way out at least as we currently think about it because it, it doesn't – Marriage in terms of being with one person for 40, 50, 60 years doesn't fit this paradigm. It doesn't fit this mindset. Yeah. And that's why the marriage rate's going down. That's why the number of married, the percent of married couples is going down. And so we might be seeing in another generation or two a society where marriage is something this weird 10, 20 percent, probably highly religious people. Yeah, the weirdos. And the other people have moved on. Isn't it, and these aren't connected necessarily, but. The LGBTQ movement finally got marriage, and now the minute they're married, every all the marrieds are like, eh, maybe right. not. Yeah. Although keep in mind, there was actually a fairly vocal part of the LGBT community that said, why are we fighting for this? Why, yeah. This why, is, why do we want this so outdated institution, patriarchal institution that, that doesn't really fit what we're trying so to do? So true. Um, in fact, th- this is probably another show, another topic for us to talk about, but the new thing coming down the pipeline is non-consensual monogamy. There's several articles, several discussions that I'm hearing happening around even if you're married, heterosexual or otherwise, why should you be stuck with one person? Why can't you have an open marriage? Why would – yeah. If it's happiness, why not? Why wouldn't you? And so – and we've talked about this because it's different. Mm -hmm. It's different than a committed monogamous covenant or agreement. Mm -hmm. Boy, that's scary. Yeah. Wow. That's the next one coming down the pipeline. Is that your third? That's the next book. Maybe that's the next book. (laughs) Like is that – I mean that will be pushed back against I'm sure academically, right? Because have we ever seen that succeed? You'd be surprised. No, there's already academic articles arguing for it that I've seen, that me and my colleagues have seen. Okay, But there is a history of monogamy and consensual marriage, right? Right. I mean there's a long, long history of this. Most of human history. Human history. Yeah. So, but, but again, remember, what is, our, what is our benchmark? If our benchmark is marital satisfaction, yeah, right. marital happiness, well, if I'm in a marriage and we both agree that we can see people on the side and I'm taking a survey, I'm pretty satisfied. Interesting. Yeah. I'm pretty happy right now. Now, again, in my 20s, 30s, 40s maybe. Now, who knows when I'm 60, 70 what the long-term toll mm. of that's going to be. Um, but yeah. Boy, that's a downer. Now we're scaring everyone. Now you're scaring everyone. So those that aren't moving that way yet but want to make – want to get rid of the fear, how do you overcome a paradigm that you may have been learning, a way of thinking you've been learning your entire life that it's about you being happy? How do I – how am I supposed to finally make make marriage fit that paradigm? So I, I think, and sometimes when I present this material to students, their pushback is, so wait a minute, are you, are you telling me I'm not supposed to be happy? Is that what your message yeah, you're, is? Yeah, you're like, telling my life's supposed to be miserable. Yeah, that it's for the greater good. Yeah. I said, no, no, no. It's about what is happiness, right? That, that's yeah. the question people have to start to think about for themselves is that what we're talking about is a happiness based on personal enjoyment and, and personal um, satisfaction in a day. Like you're doing things for me all the time. Where if you talk to, and, and one of the best things you can do, I think, is go talk to someone who's been married for 30, 40 years. Go find that. If it's not your parents or it's not your grandparents, go find someone and talk to them. What you're going to find is that they're very happy in their marriage, but they don't talk a lot about themselves. 
and personal happiness. They're going to talk about this deeper sense of stability in their lives. They're going to talk about there was someone here with me that I could always count on. There was someone here that just got me, Hmm. that no one else gets me like this person does because of the history, because of what we've built. And not even perfectly getting you, but they were there. Mm -hmm. And I always joke, and they also know that their spouse burns the roles every time. Right. And they'd still rather have that. Right. Yeah, and it's not because the roles are good. It's just because that's what they exactly. That's what they've learned. That's yeah. what they are together on. Yeah. Quick, quick movie reference. There's an old Bruce Willis movie called The Story of Us. I don't know if you've seen uh-uh. it, but um, a lot of the people in my field love that movie. There's a monologue at the end um, of that movie um, with Bruce Willis, and I'm, I'm totally forgetting the actor Michelle Pfeiffer. I okay. believe is who it was. And it, the whole movie is about them separating and, and getting a divorce. But at the end, she decides to reconcile with him and she gives this wonderful monologue about the history hmm. of us and says there's a history here I don't want to throw that away there's something deeper here other than our petty differences and the arguments that we're having and it really hits on this idea of again happiness and joy coming from something deeper yeah. than our day to day surface level happiness and as I think people need to think about what what makes me happy what is going to make me happy not just today but in a decade, in two decades, for my entire life, what do I want to look back on in my marriage, and what do I want it to be? That's huge, and and I guess too the um, the the fact that you've you've worked. I mean, it, it's we we kind of think that happiness is almost the absence of work. It right. should just be easy and natural. But marriage is hard because you have to work at it, right? Yeah. <sighs> And like anything, you where you work hard at it for years and years, you should be proud of it. Yeah, right. Proud of this relationship that we've built. And it it really is the t- uh, I use a, a Saint Exupery quote from the Little Prince about it's it's kind of about making ties. So the more ties you make around someone, the more things you serve and have to work through, and the more ties you create, you're actually more bound to that person. It's, right. And love is richer and deeper. But if we, in a way, I guess you've got to ride the you got to ride the roller coaster for a while. Yeah. And there's going to be you up start and liking downs. the roller coaster. Yeah. And it, it's going to be up and downs, but hopefully you keep climbing, right? It's that yeah. endless roller coaster that right. keeps going up. And you might have those dips, but you keep moving forward. Do is that something we can teach our kids? Do we have to do we model that for our kids? How do we change so we don't have another generation of parenting for just happiness? Mm-hmm. What should we teach instead of I of course I want you happy. Right. And I want you what? Yeah. So so you do teach and you do model. And the biggest thing parents can do that can model is you model a marriage that's based on a joint union and not just two parallel lives. Mm-hmm. So many kids see their parents, mom goes to work, dad goes to work. I see them kind of talk to figure out logistical things, but that's all I see. There's no sense that mom and dad are this joint unit yeah. together. It feels like they're just kind of roommates and kind of going through their whole thing. And then I see them fight every once in a while or fight a lot. So do my children see me and my wife working it? When we present something to them, is it, hey, we've talked about this and we think this oh, is what we need to do? Are we using we words and us words rather, rather than, well, I think you should do this. Your mom thinks you can do this. You get to decide which yeah. one. Or, hey, we happen to line up today. Right. Um, I think that language is really important. Because it's also – that's showing that there's an actual institution. There's right. a cohesive – other institution there, yeah. the marriage. Yeah. And the interesting thing, when I've interviewed young adults in my own research and asked them about their parents, a lot of them don't talk about their parents as one thing. They talk about, well, 
here's what my mom's like, and here's mm-hmm. what my dad's like. Here's what my mom showed me about marriage, and here's what my dad showed me about yeah, marriage. Yeah, interesting. But they don't have a lot of it's, that sense of – They didn't bring it together. They were one thing. That's fascinating. And that's – I mean I guess that's because we probably aren't married. We're not – we don't see it as a one thing. Right. Yeah, because we're so busy and a yeah. lot of people have, like I said, that kind of parallel lives with dual incomes and dual hobbies and dual mm-hmm. friends. It's hard to model that sometimes. Do we teach that? I mean it, it seems like that's – I mean I kind of teach it but I don't – I teach it because it's, it seems more of a spiritual belief I have than kind of the way we see marriage. Right. No, and in part going back to just the fear people have about marriage, um, I was telling this to another radio um, or another media person I was talking to earlier this week. And we were talking about this topic, and she was asking, why are young adults so so anxious about marriage? What's going on and in terms of the messages we were sending them? Um, and I said, well, one of the things in terms of education is that they don't get any, right? They've got mom and dad like we were talking right. about. But your average person in their 20s has gotten no education at all about relationships, relationships right. and marriage. And so part of all these anxieties and fears we're talking about are being created because there's a vacuum. I want this thing. But I don't really know how to do it. Yeah. And if you think about it in our lives, anytime you want something, right, I, my garage door is broken right now. I want it fixed. I don't know how to do it. That causes stress yeah. and anxiety. Okay, yeah. I got to go find someone. Yeah. How am I going to do this? And so I think for a lot of people today, that's where the fear of marriage is coming from. They don't know how to do it mm-hmm. because we're not teaching it no. anywhere. Well, and you, I even see it in high school kids. They don't – it's almost like they, they don't date. They just – it's a – it's a group. It's a right. party. Yeah. They hang. Mm-hmm. It's a hanging group. Right. And I'm like, we need – like I teach my kids all – no, you need to yeah. date. Right. I'm, I'm begging my kid to get a girlfriend. Right. Like you need a girlfriend. Yeah. And why? Because parents might do that sometimes. Yeah. Right? There's pressure on dating. But then a lot of, like you said, teenagers are saying, yeah. why? Why? What's the point? And we can hang. Yeah. We can, we can hang out, especially if I'm a religious teenager. Yeah. And so there's not necessarily this physical motivation to but be you, in it. But What's the point? How great if you could like also learn to break up. Right. Wouldn't that be a good skill to learn like, yeah. and learn to give and serve and adapt and right. change? But not happening. Right. Exactly. Not happening. Wow, Brian. That's kind of uh, depressing but in a good way. Yeah. So give us one thing we can do today. What, what could I do today as a parent uh, that might be able to change the tide for my family? Ask your kids what marriage means to them, and I think you'll be surprised by the answer. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So just ask them. Say, what, what do you think a marriage is? Paul and chain. Yeah. They'll have something. Yeah. And then I think that can spur the conversation. And then maybe evaluate your own marriage. Are mm-hmm. you a unit? Are you, a, are you a, an institution? Right. Exactly. Or are you just two separate beings that kind of fly around each other? Yep. Good stuff. Dr. Brian Willoughby's his name. And uh, you're going to want to go to his website, drbrianwilloughby.com, drbrianwilloughby.com, where you can get more information about uh, his his book, The Marriage Paradox, plus new books coming out, two new books announced today that will be written over the next couple of years. He's a very busy man. (laughs) Brian Willoughby, thank you so much. We'll continue uh, learning from him. Every couple of weeks, we bring him in to pick his brain. Up next, our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. We're going to find out what they thought about uh, Hayward's... uh, broken ankle. That's an ugly mess. Straight ahead. (music) 
Welcome back, friends. You know, by special assignment, we're now going to go to Las Vegas, Viva Las Vegas, with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation, uh, where apparently, uh, uh, air quotes, they're holding meetings and media press interviews. Is that right, gentlemen? We're sportsing, as you know we do. You're, spor- you're sportsing in Vegas. Sports! We're in Lost Wages. I mean Las Vegas. Lost Wages. So uh, Lost Wages. This is the second home of BYU Sports Nation. It is Studio B South, Matt. It really is. It's it's Studio J. Studio V. Studio Vegas. L. Yeah. Uh, Studio, Studio B. B. Studio V. I like it. Yeah. And then it rhymes with B. It's I might exactly. actually use that on the show, Matt. No, Thank use you it. for contributing something use to it. our show. Intellectual property. If you could just put a footnote, uh, that'd be great. Just a footnote. Brought to you by Matt Townsend. Um, boy, so so you're who? What's going on there? You're interviewing all the other coaches. What? It's the West Coast Conference Basketball Media Days, and typically this is in L.A. or San Francisco. They've had it at YouTube headquarters before. Today and tomorrow, it is at the Orleans Arena, home of the West Coast Conference Basketball Championships in March, which we are always at, as you know. Yes. Uh, So today is the Women's Basketball Media Day. Tomorrow is the Men's Basketball Media Day. So we have two two two-hour editions of the program. We will talk about all things BYU like we normally do, plus West Coast Conference Basketball Media Day. So we'll talk about how the Cougars, men and women, will fare. We'll talk to the commissioner and the associate commissioner of the league. We'll talk to... Pepperdine's women's head coach, Delisha Milton-Jones, who is a two-time Olympic gold medalist and head coach now at Pepperdine. Yes. All kinds of coaches, players, BYU, non-BYU. It's going to be a fun couple of days. Who's going to win the league, man? This is awesome. Plus, you guys get some tan, some sun. You're going to get out, I'm sure, and, and, and hit the links, right? Will we hit the links? I don't know. I don't know what we're doing this afternoon. In I have fact, no idea. On our, we're doing a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes Instagrams uh. Uh, today, so check that out. BYU Sports Nation on Instagram. We are asking people what we should do this afternoon. We've been to Vegas a million times. Yeah. We've kind of done the main stuff. We want to see if there's something we haven't done that people want us to do. Yeah, that's very what, BYU-like. What should we do? This is a big top. deal. Should we go to Top Golf. We're bored. We go I've ride been to ro- Top Golf. Should we go ride the new roller coasters at the top of the Stratosphere? Well, I've not done that. You one. have not done that? I don't want Maybe. to do that. Oh, one. come on. Let's go, man. <laughs> you know what yeah. you could do? I got an idea. Maybe you guys could just go back to your room and watch replays of Gordon Hayward. Uh, no, uh, please, no. No, thank you. Please, is that Was no. that the most so, incredible moment ever? Oh, wow, that's so bad. I feel so badly for him. Yeah, that's. What do you. I mean. Plus, we were just—I ta- was just talking to our last guest about it. What do you do when you broke your foot and it's turned the wrong way in front of twenty thousand people? I mean, yeah, you was, still have it, to get off the fi- off the court. Yeah, uh, it, it was such a weird situation, and you could see like all of the players from both teams were just like perplexed at what had just happened. And I know that you know his departure from Utah wasn't great, right? But no departure would be. It's just. It but that's not – I mean, that's just sad. Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's terrible. It's it's bad. What does it do – You don't want to see anyone get hurt, but especially in the first game no. and the way it happens. What no. do you do what, – what does this do to Boston? I think they were going to be one of the top two seeds anyway. They're I, a little I, young behind him. I still think they'll be one of the top three seeds in the East. Yeah, even the Wizards are Gordon making a push. Hammer. Yeah. Hmm. Boy. I mean, e- either way, they're going to need to uh, win a tough second-round matchup to play the Cavs. Yeah. 
but, uh, if they're yeah, but it's still Cavs Warriors, right? Side of the Cavs, who will, are your likely number one seed in the East? I yeah. Just, I, selfishly, I just was like, man, I, I was looking forward to watching Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving play together. Yeah, that would have been. They got six minutes together. Uh, well, I I have Kyrie Irving on my fantasy team. Oh yeah. I expect, yeah. More from him now. Now I expect more from Kyrie, unfortunately, right. due to injury. Boy. The selfish things that matter. The selfish things that matter but don't, yeah. but seem like yeah, they do. I, I want Gordon Hayward to uh, get better, man. He's one of the best players in the league. I, I guess that's a player. Have you heard, is, is he going to come back this year? Is this a season ender? Oh, man. I, I After watching I mean, what happened. Because they have a long season, they don't they? Finals without him. It's, yeah. That's only seven or eight months away. That's, I mean, that feels soon. That does feel soon. Hey, uh, speaking of injured, how are the Cougars going to fare this this week? This is an interesting matchup. East Carolina gives up 50 points a game, mm. 600 yards. Uh, they are the worst defense in the country yes, in and, those two categories. And BYU has one of the worst offense. Third this, worst. <laughs> third worst by points in offense. So if BYU cannot score and get yards this week, BYU just can't do it. Yeah. They then, just can't do it. This is the week to do it. <laughs> This is it. Got to get into the high twenties yeah. at least. This is the week. Oh, this is exciting. Confidence and winning are really funny in how they play on the psyche, and this team has forgotten how to win, and so they they just need to discover the feeling, the of touch, winning the feel of football game again, <laughs> the fabric of our lives. Man. Oh wow! I just you know I got to wipe a tear. I'm wiping it here. <laughs> That's, That's pretty good, right? That was really good. You you could probably have a show there in Vegas. All right, gents. Well, I know you got to go get ready. Wax on, wax off. Best of luck uh, there in Vegas. BYU Sports Nation, folks. It's just about five minutes away. You get to just eat these cute little kids up and just squeeze their cheek. Oh, sorry. I just went crazy there. Yeah, they hung up. Yeah. By the way, back to Jeff's uh, moped. We should have asked them. Oh, yeah. I don't think – I think mopeds are very masculine. Really? So, so I think I sh- if I were you, I'd get a moped. But you also said masculine in a very feminine way. Yeah. I mean you could get a Harley. That's kind of masculine in like a really masculine way. By the way, there's Harleys for females as well. But, but that's almost a sexist comment because is. that assumes that, you know, only women are going to have two feet up on this little platform. Like that's a womanly thing to do. Oh, no. No, 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 no. No. It's, it's, sometimes it's because they have a dress. But you, it doesn't matter where you put your feet. I was never thinking of it as where you put your feet. I think I, it's more the helmet you're going to wear. The gopher face. The goggles, the gopher face. <laughs> that's what I think is scaring your wife. And she knows the face you'll make. But to me, so you, how fun it is! How fun would it be to be able to drive your kids to their friend's house on just a fun little putt-putt scooter? Exactly. So you're thinking maybe she wants like a leather jacket. Yeah. I think if you bring scruff. home. Uh-huh, get some scruff. Bring home a leather jacket. Get a really nice helmet. Maybe like one of those old German soldier helmets. Hmm. With the spike on top? Uh-huh. Skull and crossbones <laughs> on your leather jacket. Get some boots, really nice boots. Yeah. Anyway, if that doesn't turn you into a man, I don't know what would. Hey, uh, our hero story of the day is a beautiful little kindergartner. Listen to this. Two weeks ago, five-year-old girl named Sunshine Elfke of Ishfeming, Michigan. Ish, Ishpeming? 
Don't bother. Ishpeming, Michigan, emptied out her piggy bank onto her living room floor and immediately started counting. Her grandmother, Jackie, thought she was playing as she was carefully lining up stacks of nickels and pennies. But then she saw the girl um, stuff the coins into a crink and crinkled bills into a plastic bag and placed them in her backpack ready for school, which piqued the curiosity of the grandmother. Nobody messes with their piggy bank, right? She asked the girl, what are you doing with the money? And this beautiful little girl said, I'm taking it to school because one of her friends didn't have enough money for milk uh, at school. And so she took her $30 and after counting it up, was able to pay for uh, milk for this girl and a bunch of other kids in the class. And that's why she's the hero of the day. She saw a need and she just took her little piggy bank and made it happen. That's, That's the goodness that exists on this earth, folks. So do not despair. There's goodness out there. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. BYU Sports Nation's up next. 